(laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man. I I can't believe, like, I can't believe I got to be here for this. And then, you know, sitting there in the room with like 25 people in the media all day, I I would say I was live tweeting it now. And then we have the the finally from Joffy, which is really, really amazing. Um, So I was going to do like a summary or whatever, but I don't even know where to start, man. I mean, there's so, there's so much that happened today. Um, I'm going to try to add a few people as speaker here and we'll just kind of dive into it here. Assume we're going to have a pretty big chat. So just kind of get situated here. This is wild. It's, it's awesome that undead that you're at the trial you're in the media room it's it's super cool uh i I think we're all really excited i mean we're very excited to hear your your firsthand experience and everything you saw and and heard there and then the the meat of this stuff is just crazy so this there's so much to talk about absolutely so i mean i'll I'll hit a couple of broad points here um but then obviously i want to hear everybody everybody's thoughts and everybody's reaction so um obviously i was there today they opened up the trial uh, before the jury got in there, they were talking about this motion and they, they weren't real specific on who it related to. Um, I believe it did relate to agent Heidi, um, which kind of developed through the day. So then at lunch, they, they kind of discussed the motion too. And then even after the jury left for the day, they were discussing this, this kind of this vague reference to a motion, uh, related to impeachment of a witness on, um, you know, who is apparently the subject of an investigation. So as the day developed, I thought that was Gaynor. Um, but now I'm not so sure. I think maybe it is Heidi. Uh, that's actually the subject of that, which makes more sense, I think, with the timeline. Um, but yeah, so that was pretty interesting. Then we got into Priestap, who just didn't remember anything. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. And a lot of people in the media room were just laughing at him because it was, it was totally ridiculous. Like the first question... It was just foundation, standard stuff, like, hey, what was your last job title? And he didn't remember. Like, he struggled with that, and he had to be helped out with what his job title was. So that was, like, a rough start. Um, he did not seem like he was prepped at all. And then, you know, as you get into this testimony, the Durham team's trying to hit these home runs, and they're asking him, like, you know, hey, is it important for the FBI and you and your role with the FBI to know if a uh, if the information has a political connection, right? Is it is it from a political campaign? Is that important to know? And then they ask, you know, if this information is from a CHS who's going doing an end around around his handler to provide the information, is that important to know? And then they asked about you know somebody that has business contracts with the FBI, and Rodney Joffe apparently has a lot of business contracts with the FBI. And to all those points, they asked, you know, is that important to know? And then Priestap like just ridiculously was up there like, well, I struggle with the word important. It was certainly relevant to know. And like, that's kind of the whole testimony of pre-stap in a nutshell. It was, it was totally ridiculous. And then, I mean, the real fireworks happened as we got into Gaynor and Sands and Gaynor was incredibly articulate. I I thought he was an extremely strong witness for the, for the prosecution. Uh, He was, he spoke really, really well. He was really confident in answers. And then, as we saw, the defense, I mean, the cross-examination was just incredibly long. And as it got into it, it's like, okay, are they reaching? And then they started scoring some points. And, you know, Gaynor apparently had five meetings with the government in prep for this trial. And the first meeting is the one that really had the issue. So that was back in October 2020. 
And at that time, apparently he didn't do like any prep work. Like he hadn't looked at any notes and basically all his answers were wrong, which is a, a big problem. And then like his second meeting was in December, 2020. And the real problem was by that point, he did have an opportunity to review his notes. He did have notes in his possession, but he still gave wrong answers. And that became a real big problem because his answer for why he remembered stuff later was, oh, well, I referenced my notes. And I think that was a big point that the defense made was like, wait a minute, you had these notes when you gave the wrong answers. And he did not have an explanation for that at all. So the defense, you know, I'm going to call it like I see it. They scored some points with him. It doesn't seem like they moved the ball forward on the central issue in the case, whether or not Sussman lied or whether it was really material that it didn't really go into material. And I think King had some great remarks on that uh, and DMs that we had. And I can't wait to hear King talk about that. But real briefly, I'll say, you know, Sands was kind of the same way. I thought she was a pretty good witness uh, for the prosecution. And then as you got into it, it's like, wait a minute, she's a brand new agent for the FBI. Like she was only with the FBI as a special agent for like three months. And then they have her like headlining this investigation. And like, she's the one that's briefing the headquarters once or twice a day uh, on the status of things, which is, which is pretty crazy. Um, and then, you know, they're having her, I thought she did pretty well. Uh, but the, the cross-examination again was really, really long. And they were trying to strip her up, and I think she did a good job of staying ahead of them. I don't think there's quite as much material, but they did get her. They did hurt Durham a little bit, I think, in that um, the other point that they're making, it, which I think does go to materiality a little bit, is basically they, the government or the FBI went and did all these investigative steps after they knew there was major issues with this data. Like they knew there was issues with the data by October 5th and October 6th. They had strong indications it was debunked, but then they went and did extra investigative steps. So part of the challenge for Germ is going to be to flay that out and say, okay, well, this is an action that was uh, caused that would not have otherwise been taken. And, and that's, you know, kind of the hang up of Durham's entire prosecution strategy so far, I think, is that they've got this big, big narrative out there. And they went so fast today. I'm, I'm somebody, I consider myself really well-versed in this stuff. And I have to tell you, I was really, really struggling to follow all these exhibits and all these emails and like follow exactly what I was saying. And it's a false statement case. And I'm just sitting there thinking, you got you to gotta simplify this. Like, this is crazy. Um, I, I was kind of disappointed with that lack of strategy. I mean, they're, they're making it much more complicated. And that's providing these opportunities for the defense to like draw out the cross-examination is incredibly long. And I think there's a risk that the jury's going to be like, well, wait a minute, I, I don't understand what's going on. Uh, this is too much. And, you know, I'm just going to say there's reasonable doubt and acquit. So, I mean, those are kind of some high level takeaways. I, I obviously live tweeted everything. I also have like eight pages of notes uh, that I managed to take. So um, I'm sure I have some more thoughts here, but I'll open this up. Um, I see we have a full chat tonight. Uh, Ship, King, Mansoor and MB, if you guys have any thoughts you want to share, go ahead and kick things off. I'll add a couple more speakers too. Can you speak to um, the opening of the Chicago investigation? Um, two things, the CHS, was it Joffe? And secondly, uh, what was it? 
um, whether or not um, basically like headquarters was, you know, obfuscating uh, the source that they were wonder wanting to interview. Did you get clarity on that? Because I was reading all the stuff today and I can't remember. Yep. If that... Yeah, that's a good question. So Rodney Jaffe is the, the CHS. That was made clear later in the day. And for a long time there today, I was sitting there thinking like, wait a minute, who is the CHS? But, but yes, that was made clear in later questioning. Uh, hopefully the jury picked up on that. I'm not sh- quite sure they did. Uh, but yeah, to your second point, I think it was Elson Sands that was up there as they were talking about. Um, uh, what was your second question again? Go ahead and repeat that. I want to make sure I got it right. Well, I guess just like who, how that was originated, like who was pushing it, okay. um, and you know how did Chicago get it? Yep. Um, and like if if headquarters was you know what they said keeping it close. Um, Matt, you know, what's his name almost got threatened with prosecution for just breathing the fact that it was Democrat related. Um, what did we get a better sense of what was going on there? Man, it was crazy. So Gaynor was up there for a long time and they're, they're really hammering them on this closely held thing, which apparently is not typically documented. In this case, it wasn't. So, uh, the defense alleged and the, the prosecution did nothing to refute that this was a closely held investigation, which implies that. Uh, Gaynor was supposed to withhold information from the field agents or they weren't. And that's what Gaynor was kind of flushing out was, well, it was closely held, so I wasn't allowed to uh, tell these field agents. And he said that he was talking to Maffa, Strzok, and uh, he thought it came from Baker, ultimately, uh, this directive of it being closely held. But Elson Sands is the one that actually opened up the investigation, the EC, and testimony that came out around that was that she was directed to open it by uh, Curtis Hyde, I believe. And they introduced a email from Pientka, I think it was Pientka, to Hyde, where they were saying something to the effect of, uh, that's where actually the seventh floor came into play. So that was the, the big, like one of the, the big moments of today was uh, the seventh floor, uh, including the director, is really fired up about this alpha stuff. Uh, but in that, st- <laughs> yeah, in that string of text messages, like a couple more later, um, it went on to say that something to the effect of pre-stat didn't think, uh, didn't want to pursue it, didn't, didn't think it was right to go forward on it. And then they said, they basically did like an end around to Dan, uh, which I can't pronounce its last name. So that's kind of how it opened up at least. Um... Yeah, ship or king. I don't know if you guys have thoughts. Oh, and I could, you know, with with what I've, you know, with what I've read today, and just sort of some of the conclusions that I've drawn, you know, along the way over many months or even years, especially you know when I was doing some work uh, in the lead up to Carter Page's complaint, uh, which I worked on that. Um, Bill Priestap, to me, is a guy who had reached the end of his career. He had reached the last rung in the bureau leadership that he was going to get to, whether that's by virtue of simply he was approaching mandatory retirement age or, you know, with Comey and McCabe now in the top two slots, you know, it just he wasn't he, he, he wasn't didn't have 
the uh, drag net in front of him to pull him along further. You know, I don't get the feeling that he was a McCabe guy. You know, that McCabe, that Andy McCabe was his rabbi, so to speak, as they say, and would have advanced him, you know, further. I don't know how many slots there were above where he was at that he could have gone. But, but, you know, in, in listening, and, and, and this goes back to not just this episode and his testimony today and, and you know, what he said about Alpha, but also the sort of his involvement in, you know, trying to undo uh, the General Flynn prosecution where his notes reflected, you know, what, what's our end game here? Or what, are, what are we after here? Getting him fired or a thousand or one count? It really strikes me is that, you know, Priestap was just warming the seat, looking forward for it. He was, he was RIP, retired in place. And um, uh, by the same token, he's in a position that has dozens and dozens of highly um, uh, consequential investigations that all come up to him on the counterintelligence side. And and what I heard from him, the thing that most, you know, resonated with me today and his the testimony related to him was when he said, I don't remember it. My only recollection is it didn't amount to anything. So it's like this is one of dozens of things that the counter that the 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 assistant director for counterterrorism is like this was a nothing. This was a dry hole. I, I moved on. I had dozens of other things that I was responsible for oversight on that were meaningful, and this was not. I don't remember it because I didn't have any reason to remember it. Um, and that, that, to me, is completely authentic, especially for a guy, you know, it's at the end of a 25, 30-year career with the Bureau and, you know, is, is you know, really thinking about, you know, where I'm going to go in the corporate world to make, you know, you know, $275,000 a year as a director of security for some Fortune 500 company. Because that's what they're all thinking about at his level in the last two years is, you know, where am I going to go interview for my second career in corporate America? Um, so it didn't strike me at all unusual for pre-step to be up there and say, I just don't remember mainly because this investigation went nowhere. And in the time frame that he was involved, September, October 2016, there were lots of other things going on that were more meaningful to him, captured his attention on a, on a, on a daily basis and you know, became more hardwired into his brain than you know, this issue. Um, so, but you know, I, I'll hang on here for a little while tonight I mean, there's you know 20 other things I could talk about based on on what I what I've read today and 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 uh, you know my my reactions to stuff as well as a big win for me today in a January 6th case. But we can talk about that another time. Congrats! I like it. I uh, I do want to put you on the spot here in a second, um, which I I love to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, you raise a good point about pre-stamp. I mean, it, that's something I overheard in the media room today. It was just how laughable it sort of is that. This guy's notes were so central to the Flynn uh, case kind of being and Flynn being exonerated, if you will. And then uh, obviously they're highly consequential here with Sussman, where he explicitly says that Sussman came, didn't have a client or whatever. And then on both 
both counts. Like, he seems to have witness amnesia. I mean, he gets up there, and he, he just doesn't remember anything. Um, which, you know, maybe that's legitimate. Um, it is yeah, a long but, time ago, so. Yeah, but, but the point is that in that week of whatever that day of the meeting, like, I think they met the day after Sussman came in to meet with Baker. He met with Baker, and in that week, he might have had 25 meetings that were consequential on real things. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and they did make took, a... And he took notes on all of them, and the notes get filed away that he never even looks at again. Yeah, and, and I think they did make a good point, at least early in the day, with the various witnesses uh, of the data being, you know, uh, incomplete and false. I think that was pretty good uh, for the prosecution today. But what I wanted to put you on the spot was uh, really before the proceedings got underway today, uh, the judge was making inquiries as it relates to Licklau's motion. Uh, and Licklau wants to really limit the government, the government's ability to cross-examine him. And I think we kind of talked about this yesterday, but what the judge actually said and posed at one point was, you know, DOJ policy right now is not to fight against reporters' privilege if they want to bring them into a trial. So if the, the government wanted to subpoena them and have them up there on direct, uh, they wouldn't really fight against a reporter who wanted to assert privilege over certain information. So in that vein, the judge posed the question of, you know, what limitations should there be on cross-examination for Lickblau? And he seems really receptive to limiting the government, which is pretty amazing. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I did read some of that, and I did listen to uh, the Govea and, and, and got sort of a, a – I don't think that's where Cooper was going. I think where Cooper was going is saying, look, I think most of this stuff is largely tangential and maybe irrelevant. I don't really want to confront the privilege issues. I'm more interested in narrowing down the scope of both direct and cross on the basis of relevance. Like what among the things that Lickblau might say have to do with Sussman? And what is just stuff you'd like to ask him? because it might produce interesting answers, but not necessarily relevant to Sussman. And, and so that's where I, and, 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 and Judge Cooper said, I want to avoid the privilege issue altogether. Well, the way yep. you avoid the privilege issues, you don't say you have a privilege. You just say that I find that 90% of what you guys want to ask him about is irrelevant in this case. And I'm going to tell you under rule 403, you don't get to ask those questions because I don't think the answers assist the jury in deciding whether Mr. Sussman lied or not, because that's all we're here for. Well, I think like one of the, the, the points that was made later on was David Dagan was sort of like the person interfacing with all the media entities. And, uh, you know, at one point at least was going to interface with the FBI. So um, apparently the Lick Blau did speak to David Dagan. Now that is a little bit ancillary to, you know, the false statement as it's charged and, and given the limitations on the joint venture conspiracy theory um, that Durham wanted to present, I mean, it still ultimately goes to the witness's credibility, doesn't it? Yes, but how, wh what can Licklau testify about what Dagan said? It's all hearsay. But Dagan's immunized. I mean, couldn't it Dagan come matter. in? Doesn't matter. You, you want to call Dagan's witness, call Dagan's witness. Okay. But but how? Wh why should Licklau testify about what Dagan told him? Whatever Dagan told him is hearsay. And and if it's okay, so if not for the truth of the matter asserted, then why is it relevant? How is what? How is what Dagan said to Licklau relevant to Sussman's lie? 
Okay. You know, that, that, that's a good point. The, you know, that's that's part of the issue here, the difference between trying kind of trial evidence. Like, not everything that might make the story more complete or, or more interesting comes in because <laughs> unless you're going to call, you know, 100 people, you know, Lickbaugh could testify about the questions he asked and why he asked them and what he said to Dagan, but Dagan's answers are hearsay. Usually none of this stuff is getting in. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I, I think those are good points, and the judge did leave it open, but um, it will be interesting, I think, to see what happens with Lickbaugh and um, what type of limitations there might be on, on the cross-examination. Or Certainly, the I mean... Uh, uh, well, he, what he's going to do is he's going to limit the direct. And well, then he's going to say, okay, the cross can cover the direct, but the direct is going to be very narrow. The direct is going to be interacting between Lickbaugh and Sussman. Well, see, and like he has the defense... Um, what they were going to ask on direct and the direct was laying out like a lot of questions. They, they covered a lot of ground and what they represented. They were going to ask Lickblau. Um, I have it in my notes here somewhere, but um, it, like my impression was, okay, well, if they're asking him all that, then Durham's pretty much got to have like free latitude to ask him, you know, all the different connected pieces to it. Cause they, they really did have like an expansive list of uh, a field that they were going to ask Lickblau. So, um, I don't know. I mean, we'll see what develops out of that. But uh, if you have any other thoughts on, on anything else today, I'd be interested to hear from you or anybody else no, that wants to. I, I, yeah, the, the, you know, just to, to kind of to finish that point, you know, I, I, this is always, a, you know, this is always sort of the role of the judge. And, and federal judges are much more aggressive than, in my experience, you know, what I've seen of state court judges, you know, like the Rittenhouse case. Federal judges are much more aggressive in narrowing the case. Like, and, and I've heard judges say to me, you know, look, why do we have this jury here for three weeks for a trial that should take three days? They're, you've called them away from their lives to sit in this courtroom and listen to you guys ramble on and drone on about stuff that's not relevant. Why, why should I not have interest, foremost in my interest their time? You know, and that kind of goes to the question. You got a one count false statement about whether this guy said or did not say he was representing our client. And it's going to take three weeks. The meeting between Sussman and <laughs> the meeting between Sussman and Baker took, what, a half an hour of the trial over what was said is going to take three weeks. Yeah, I, I have no idea. I mean, they have two weeks blocked off for this trial. They're not going to be done. I mean, right. there's just no way they're they're going so sleuth slow through these prosecution witnesses. Um, I don't even know who's scheduled for tomorrow. Probably Trish Anderson and um, I forgot whoever we didn't get to today. Oh, oh I, sorry, that, that, that goes to another point I want to make, and I'll, I'll turn this over to somebody else in, in just a second. Sure. Allison Sands, was that the name of the, the young female FBI yes. agent? Okay. And what, how did she just physically, how did she come off to you? Uh, pretty good. Um, is she bigger, she, smaller, younger, a little bit younger? Yeah, she's a little bit younger. Obviously, she was only a, like a special agent for like three months when they right, had her that, like tasked to. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, the FBI had her like, you know, brief in the headquarters on the status of the investigation once or twice daily. And like she's opening the EC. She's, you know, making all these that's decisions. Just, that's, that's it's just crazy. Curtis Weald, I think, was her training agent, she said. So, so, yep. so she's an agent, a new agent out of the academy is assigned a training agent generally for a year. Training agent, 
you know, supervises and looks over their shoulder on everything they do. And essentially the training agent can use the, the, the new agent as their flunky to do all the ECs, to do all the, the, the paperwork. Okay, so the fact that she opened the EC, the EC didn't say anything that Heal didn't want it to say. She just typed it. Now, when, when uh, and, and I'm not quite sure how it ended up in Chicago, other than keep in mind that Crossfire Hurricane was being run out of headquarters when headquarters doesn't run investigations. Okay, investigations are done in the field offices. And this was being done out of headquarters as kind of a special, closely held thing that Peter Strzok was watching over, right? Now, Gaynor is a unit chief in headquarters. They don't run investigations either. But didn't Gaynor testify that he volunteered to Joe Pietka to try to run this thing down and to, to find out what was all about? And then yes, later he, he said he regretted? Okay. He's a unit chief. Units... Units support field offices. They don't do independent investigations themselves. You know, people rotate in and out of units on a on a weekly basis. It's kind of like a stopping point as people are trying to gain, uh, you know, uh, subject matter expertise. You know, they'll leave a field office as an agent will leave a field office, go to a unit which has a narrow focus in order to gain some expertise on that subject matter, whether it's cyber, Russia. China, you know, there's all kinds of units at, at headquarters. Okay, so 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 Gainer's not even a squad supervisor. Squads run investigations. Gainer's not even a squad supervisor, but he runs this thing down through Chicago. I, I don't think it ever came out exactly why this ended up in Chicago, and when it ended up in Chicago, why it ended up on the desk of an agent with three months' experience, other than I think she's probably got a technical background which I think is supported by the fact that after three years, she quit the Bureau and now works for Roku, right? Yeah, I think I saw somebody post out there. She worked for CyberPoint, I think is the name. I think uh, that for... was probably before coming to the FBI. That's she right. For three years at CyberPoint. She doesn't yes. work for the FBI anymore, though. I think she quit. She works for Roku now. I believe that's right. Okay, so so she's probably got a tech background. And after three years, three years realized carrying around a gun and arresting people and kicking in doors isn't really a... a career path that she thought it would be so she left all right so but but her technical background or technical expertise is probably why it landed with her but that sort of tells you that whoever shipped it off to to chicago out of the out of headquarters since headquarters doesn't typically do investigations um, was looking for somebody with a little expertise but they didn't really care if they had any experience that's that's the level of importance that was assigned to this almost immediately. Because who who was it that, or maybe it was the FBI or maybe the CIA that, that said by like four o'clock on the first day they didn't think there was anything to this. Yeah, that's After, Hellman. Hellman, yeah. So yep. so the initial analysis by cyber, I think, in DC was that there's nothing to this. It doesn't the the, the data doesn't back up the uh, the the hypothesis. But they still sent it out to Chicago, where they opened uh, an investigation with this, uh, uh, an EC and pursued it. Which maybe that's because the people on the seventh floor were jumping up and down. Why were the people on the seventh floor jumping up and down in the middle of September? Because for four weeks they'd been chasing Crossfire Hurricane and hadn't come up with anything. Yeah, I mean, 
as it relates to why it was open in Chicago, I'm a little bit unsure about this, but I, I do think I have a note somewhere here. Um, my understanding is that Rodney Joffe provided information to Agent Grasso, who forwarded it to somebody in Chicago. Now, we don't have the exact date on when Joffe gave the information to the FBI, but it was prior to September 21st. Sussman went to the Baker on September 19th, I believe, but no later than September 21st, Joffe had provided information. Now, it's entirely possible that Joffe actually gave the information to Grasso before Sussman had that meeting with Baker. And with that information, I believe, coming to Chicago, um, as we kind of got from Allison Sands in the EC, when she wrote it up, she wrote it up as uh, the Department of Justice had received information from Rodney Joffe. That is what she basically wrote up in the EC. And then later on, I mean, she forwarded this. We have all the people CC'd on this. You know, it's Struck, it's Maffa, with all this incorrect information. So the premise of the investigation on the EC is wrong. Um, and I don't know when it was corrected to it was Sussman that brought the information um, because you had both going on at the same time. And Allison was really confused about that. Yeah, and, and this that points up a point that I've made over and over again that you just certainly can never dismiss incompetence as an explanation for stuff that just gets screwed up and 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 she's only incompetence and she's only got three three months experience at the time and apparently hale didn't look at it closely enough i said nothing would have been there that he didn't want there but apparently he didn't look at it closely enough or you know the agent herself wasn't exacting enough to make sure that all the information in her ec was accurate double check the source material for all of those entries before hitting enter. Wow. <laughs> happens, this happens all the time. I, I will push back a little bit because I'll tell you what, I mean, we've, I think as a corner, we've kind of collectively been moving away from the idea that, you know, anybody at the FBI or state department or, or Obama administration will see any criminal charges. But after today, you know, I was sitting there and it just was over and over. It was like the seventh floor, you know, directed this. The seventh floor was really excited about the alpha allegations. The seventh floor um, directed this and that. And like, I just had like a really bad sense of something more than an incompetence coming down from the seventh floor. Um, You know, I think there is some level of malfeasance there and that's, you know, that's what we've been waiting on for six years. And, and is Durham actually going to do something about it or not? Well, and I think it's fair enough to say the seventh floor wanted this to be true. Andy McCabe and Jim Comey were convinced they wanted this to be true. Peter Strzok wanted it to be true. Look at their communications, text messages in the summer and fall and, and all the, exercise, the, the efforts they went through to get the, the uh, cut corners and to accelerate the pace what I think people lose track of is that the the bureau in that time frame was watching the calendar. The clock was ticking on the wall. You had a compromised Republican candidate for president who was a Russian, uh, you know, he was the Manchurian candidate or the Mos- Moscovian candidate, and the election was in eight weeks. And so if this Russia stuff was true, they had to run it to ground quickly and get it out into the public so that this, you know, Russian influence candidate, you know, might be forced to withdraw. 
I think that was the that was the goal. Well, they also have briefings from Brennan that like there's a plan, there's a Hillary plan afoot to provide this express type of evidence to FBI. So they should at least have that on their radar at the same time. And we don't see any trace of it yet. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, one one other piece that um, cast a really bad shadow over the FBI leadership was uh, on cross-examination. I think it was Allison Sands where, you know, she's up there and she's trying to answer these questions. And it's like, um, okay, well, you opened a, a full investigation, but then you didn't go interview anybody, right? Uh, basically, you did preliminary steps. You know, you didn't, you didn't obtain warrants. You didn't interview anybody. And then they kind of drilled down into that in a way that I thought was pretty effective for the defense. I don't know if it changed anything, but it, it did play pretty well in the, in the courtroom, I think, in that, um, you know, David Dagan, uh, his name was provided by Rodney Joffe uh, through Tom Grasso. And basically, they were saying, like, hey, go talk to David Dagan. Uh, he'll give you all the information. Like he's the one that wrote the white paper. They had that. And for whatever reason, they were unwilling to go interview David Dagan. And uh, Alison Sands was communicating with Tom Grasso at one point and setting up like the conditions for the interview. And then she testified and she wasn't completely sure, but she said, I believe somebody told me not to go interview him, which is amazing. And that, that smacks of interference by the top levels of the FBI leadership and she even testified she said that was the most logical investigative steps to do by that time and we didn't do it but instead they went and they subpoenaed a massive number of records from like Listrack and central dynamics and GoDaddy, hundreds of thousands of documents and they tried to recreate this and in that did not support the allegations and then still they didn't go interview david dagan and they had his name and they had the names of Matt Blaze, Steve Belvin, Susan Landau, two of them uh, were later named in the public reporting, the news reports, uh, as independent researchers. And as it turns out, they are not independent at all. They were, they were involved from the start. Uh, you know, you, you don't provide those names to the FBI and then let them be blindsided. And you don't just throw them out there uh, randomly. I mean, these, they were clearly involved with these allegations and constructing these white papers or they saw them uh, well in advance of the allegations going to the FBI. And Susan Lando is somebody I, I've personally been keen in on for a long time because she has a close relationship with um, John Blank on, you know, chief of staff uh, for President Obama. Uh, she co-wrote a paper about encryption with him just last, you know, a couple years ago. And, uh, you know, I, I have these FOIAs to Obama, and there are communications with Susan Landau uh, during the time in question. So, you know, we'll see what develops there. I, you know, I find it really, really odd and really intriguing to see Susan Landau uh, involved in this capacity. And, you know, there hasn't been much scrutiny because she hasn't been named pre previously, but people probably should take a look at her a little bit. I have a, I have a question. Sure. Shouldn't there be a, a 302 between Jaffe for Jaffe delivering that information to Grasso? Because if he finger David Dagan is writing the white paper. Okay, depending on how that was phrased, Jaffe invented the white paper. I mean, it was his idea. He brought the people together, brought the data together. The, if he 
said, no, David Diggins, this guy, you need to talk to him. He, I think he wrote it or, you know, something along those lines that was misleading or, you know, potentially a lie that that'd be really interesting. There should be a 302 uh, that Grasso wrote up. Wouldn't you think? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. There should be a 302 and, you know, Grasso's a name that uh, him and I were checking out a few weeks ago. I mean, he's got some interesting connections um, we were doing some research even before we knew that he was the handler for Joffe. So, you know, I don't want to impugn his character or anything, but you know, he's got to be, in, he's got to get put before the grand jury. He's got some questions to answer about what he knew. Um, and specifically, I mean, there's a, some sort of representation where apparently Joffe, uh, asked Grasso to keep his name out of the allegations. Um, so there is a report of these, allegations coming into the FBI anonymously, which makes no sense because he is a confidential human source. And I think it was maybe Gaynor that was up there and he said, no, like that, you know, that's why it's relevant. Why would a confidential human source do an end around his own handler to bring allegations to the FBI through Sussman? Um, And as it turns out, I mean, they're trying to create multiple information flows to create the illusion of corroboration as they did throughout Russiagate. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't, it's not a good look and, you know, I'll leave it at that, I guess. You put your finger on um, where I started this morning. <clears throat> I thought uh, hearing that testimony about Joff or your, your report about Joffe uh, being a confidential human source, CHS, providing information through Grasso on the white paper, uh, at the same, virtually the same time that Sussman was going to Baker with the same story and the same documents, the same data, but not telling Baker it came from Jaffe. So you've got two different avenues to get the same information to the FBI at the same time, simultaneously, suppose theoretically or on the surface from two independent sources, which is designed obviously to trigger an investigation. That's the kind of thing that could easily promote a conspiracy charge against Jaffe and others for doing that. It's not brought here and I'm not sure why, because it's clear the, the the mechanism they used to hide Joffe as a CHS, but allow him to feed the Chicago group <clears throat> the uh, same information that the people in D.C. were looking at independently. Uh, it's designed to manipulate the FBI. So I said, yeah. <clears throat> Voila, here's a conspiracy case, at least involving Jaffe, uh, that Durham may be looking at, hopefully. Hopefully. But, yeah. Hopefully. I, I mean, but, what, one of the other really amazing things, and I'll, I'll give it right back to you. I mean, there was, a, there was actually a point it wasn't emphasized real well, but at, at some point during the course of their investigation into these allegations, apparently they went to Grasso uh, trying to assert, get the interview with Dagan, but they also were trying to get more information about this CHS, which is Joffe. Um, and Grasso said, or 
or I think there was something to the veracity of the, the claims, like not panning out. And Grasso apparently volunteered that he had a subject matter, a subject matter expert on the allegations. And apparently that's Joffe too. So it's like, I don't know if it, you know, was distinct from his role as a confidential human source, or it was like ancillary or, or whatever, but it, it seemed like it was a distinct conversation where, um, you know, in one point he said, well, he's a confidential human source. And then in another conversation, like he said, well, wait a minute, I, I have a subject matter expert who can explain all this to you. And it's the same guy. Uh, so it's really, really bizarre uh, what Grasso was doing. Well, regardless of what he was doing, it, it's clear where the defense is heading. They uh, have taken the offense. They have put the FBI on trial. In their cross-examination of every FBI witness. Uh, and anybody listening may remember my theme in a couple of these chats uh, that you have to start with the jury, the makeup of the jury and their biases and prejudices and predispositions. And you're looking at a 90% Democrat jury pool, and it appears that, uh, you know, you've got people on the jury who donated to the Clinton campaign, uh, etc. Uh, so they are sympathetic to the Clinton campaign cause originally. And you may remember a piece of the testimony that they, the defense got out of Robbie Mook on Friday. They've, Mook reminded the jury that the two worst things that happened to Hillary Clinton during the campaign uh, were James Comey. First in conducting his uh, way off the rails press conference where he, he said she's not going to be prosecuted, but she was probably very, very negligent in the way she handled classified materials and her e private email. And the second was to, after having closed that investigation, uh, then a week or two before the, in, the election, reopened it publicly to go look at Anthony Weiner's laptop to see if that contained evidence of the crime of mishandling um, classified information coming from Hillary. So Mook reminded the jury, who I'm sure didn't need much reminding, that uh, Comey did what he could to torpedo Clinton's uh, campaign, maybe not on purpose, but through incompetence or hubris. But whatever reason, he was the culprit. That was what they took home from his testimony over the weekend. And today, we get the FBI on trial for the way they handled 
what every witness has testified has said were these concerning potentially national security uh, uh, issues related uh, possible connection between a Russian bank and Trump that need to be looked at. They could be a national security threat. We could have a traitor running for president and about to be elected. It has to be looked at. It's a matter of urgency, high priority. And what did they hear the FBI, FBI do with that? I mean, you just went over it. They sent it to Chicago and gave it to the youngest, newest agent in the Chicago office. They took it away from the cyber, the, the cyber group in D.C. that had looked at it for an hour or so and concluded it didn't amount to anything. And so Comey and his minions sent it off to Chicago, talked to the woman like twice a day, but they never interviewed anybody. They never interviewed Dagan who had produced some of this material, or most of it. They got totally confused about sources. That is, they kept the existence of Sussman and his sources secret from the investigators. They kept the existence of Jaffe as a confidential human source secret from everybody else except his handler. And they did, it was almost, it, it, they made it appear to be intentionally designed to bury it until after the election. Then they challenged every witness on their memory and their notes, that they have convenient memories and they don't take notes. Or they, when they take notes, they're not accurate. And they went, that's why they went on and on and on, Ryan, for hours cross-examining the witnesses to show the jury that these guys are either covering something up, they don't want the jury to know, or they're incompetent, one or the other. But the theme is going to be when they went in the uh, <clears throat> uh, closing arguments, will be that the FBI buried it on purpose. They didn't investigate uh, the serious allegations, and they've covered everything up, including what Sussman said or didn't say. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. And, um, I mean, as it relates to the FBI, I mean, they're certainly being painted as this bad guy. Um, and I, I sort of have a thought that's kind of ancillary to the trial, but you know, one of the things that I took away from today is the scale of this operation. And of course we knew it's huge and we know it's connected to fusion GPS and, and the Clinton campaign, obviously, but this specific set of allegations, I mean, we're still learning new information. And, you know, the other point that I think I made today was we just found out that Rodney Joffe submitted this information himself 
to his handler. So that's something that was completely unreported uh, until recently. And they were trying to, you know, fit this information into the FBI however they could. Now, by October 5th or 6th, they had, <laughs> David, they had David Dagan's name, and they had a strong su- suspicion that tea leaves and her posts were connected to what David Dagan and this uh, confidential human source were doing. And the real takeaway that I have is, why didn't they ever go back and fix this? Like, why didn't they ever, you know, we know Joffe and Sussman continue to try to feed this information to the FBI uh, to Congress as well, to the CIA. And then months go by. And, you know, there's got to be any number of inquiries that have been done, uh, most chiefly IG Inspector Horowitz. And we learn none of this. I mean, you know, the scale of the cover up has got to be massive because there are a few confidential human sources that are alluded to very distantly in a couple documents that we've seen. But nobody said. Nobody's connected the dots that should have been extraordinarily easy to connect to say, okay, well, it was Rodney Joffe all along. Like, it's not that hard. Like, we're not, you know, there are a few geniuses in this chat, I know, but like, you got to be able to say anybody could have looked at this information and connected the dots. And then, you know, Mueller, when he first took over, he would have reviewed everything that was uh, collaborated up to that point. We obviously saw the, the briefing to the DOJ in March 2017 before Mueller, um, where they were reviewing the alpha information. Where did all this information go? I mean, you know, they're briefing it to the DOJ in March like it, you know, nothing's happened. Like they haven't debunked this, like they haven't connected the dots between David Dagan and April Lorenzen and Rodney Joffe. And they absolutely connected the dots by then. I, I do not buy that they are that incompetent. They, they are supposed to be the premier law enforcement agency in the world. And you can't connect the dots between these information streams that are extraordinarily similar. Uh, I don't buy it. And then Mueller, you know, he's going to do a review when he takes over of all the information that's been collected. And, you know, where's the person that is going to hold all these people accountable? I mean, yeah, thankfully, John Durham's here and hopefully he does something. But... <sighs> All this was hidden. It was hidden from Hipsy. It was hidden from, you know, everything. And it, it's like not to be philosophical or get on a soapbox, but like this is bad. Like this, this, this is not right. It, you know, and it shouldn't take a special counsel to go in there and get this information and figure it out to connect these dots that are so brazenly uh, connectable. I mean, this, this is not hidden at all. Uh, yeah, I'll leave it there, but. Uh, Hans or Fool, I don't know if you guys want to jump in with your takeaways from today. Sure. No, you're absolutely right. None of this was hidden whatsoever at all. Um, Steve and I did an article for The Federalist just last week, and we pointed out that when the FBI briefed the DOJ on March 6, 2017, they lied their asses off because they knew all of this shit was just bullshit. They knew that Danchenko, the whole Steele dossier, everything was bullshit because two months earlier in January of 2017, Danchenko was interviewed and he said it was all bullshit. Well, now today we learned that in January as well, the whole alpha thing was shut down because it was all bullshit. So instead of going in there and telling their DOJ supervisors that it's all bullshit, they went in there. Andy McCabe went in there 
and said, oh, this is all extremely serious. I mean, he was still, this is, people really need to take this in. This makes me so angry. Hey, Hans, let me, let me jump in real quick and just mention to you in the timeline. Sure. They shut down Alpha Bank six days before Peter Strzok went to interview General Flynn. This is how desperate they are to make something work. Yeah, no, really good point. It, make, it makes me so angry to look back at that March 6th meeting. So um, for, for uh, listeners who, who you know, um, are kind of new to this, the FBI had this a sensitive investigation because it involved a presidential candidate and a president who became a president. So there were special reporting requirements and they were, uh, that required the DOJ to be in the loop at all times. And they had these uh, um, milestone meetings where they had, the FBI had to tell the DOJ exactly what was going on. Now, through, the, uh, through this Durham prosecution of Sussman, we found out about the March 6th meeting and the, the meeting notes. And all the higher-ups of the FBI, including uh, Priestap, McCabe, Strzok, went over to the DOJ, and the DOJ was represented by the acting attorney general, Dana Bonte, or Buente, or however, however you pronounce that, because poor Jeff Sessions, or I say poor, I should say like, you know, hopeless Jeff Sessions, recused two days earlier. Anyway, they went over there and said, briefed them, and they just lied their asses off. And, you know, as Ship just pointed out, the alpha thing had been shut down. But they're at the meeting talking up the alpha thing two months later. I mean, it's, it's incredible. The Danchenko interview had basically shut down Steele because Danchenko said it was just all gossip. He didn't confirm anything. I mean, apart from the million thing, which is a total lie, which he's now, which he's now in trouble for himself. And what did they do? They went in there and talked up the whole Steele thing. Why aren't any of these people on the dock right now? Why, aren't, why haven't they been indicted? The, the March 6th meeting... You have Strzok lying his ass off. You have McCabe lying his ass off. You have Priestop, Priestap lying his ass off. But instead, this guy Priestap is in court this morning for Durham. I mean, that, that's, what, that's what's so frustrating, that Durham has sort of turned it around where the FBI is the victim. Now, we can, I guess we can all understand that from a strategic point of view, because, well, you know, it's a, DJ, a DC jury, so you have to kind of... Uh, play it nice and uh, well the poor what did they say on the first day our our FBI you know our FBI was duped no they weren't duped I agree with ship totally agree with ship what do we what with what he said earlier you had people who had like two three months experience brought in just to, to deal with this absolutely ridiculous you had Priestap who, who's an absolute idiot as as uh, you know Ryan said he didn't even remember his job title I mean, I, I think all of us on, on Twitter in our corner, we've known for years that the guy is a total idiot. So you had all these idiots, but then you had a bunch of people who weren't idiots, like McCabe and Comey, who were running this thing. And, you know, they, they, they pulled off this, this scheme. They went, went in on March 6, 2017. They lied their asses off to their supervisors at the DOJ. And yet none of them are in trouble. And worse still, they are the ones on the witness stand for Durham. I mean, it, it's, it's so incredibly frustrating. And, you know, to be honest, 
I don't really care anymore whether Sussman, you know, is acquitted or hung jury. I don't really care about any of those things. The great thing about what happened today is that it was Sussman's team who exposed FBI corruption today. They brought out probably the most important thing in the past five years, that what, what Ryan mentioned earlier, that the, f- the seventh floor was very excited about this, this alpha stuff. I mean, that's just totally corrupt. What, if an agent is guided by what the seventh floor wants, that, that's just complete corruption. You've got to shut the place down. And, and that's what was testified today. So, you know, that is worth more than anything that happens in the case, you know, win or lose or whatever. Today was a complete and total indictment of the FBI. And, you know, I'm, I'm very happy it happened. Yeah, I, I kind of will reiterate what I said earlier. You know, I, I never in my thinking get too far away from the August, September and early October time frame. The people in the top five or six slots at the FBI exposed themselves in their own communications between each other as being, you know, anti-Trump partisans. Either they were Democrats or they were part of the Republican establishment that, that Trump first, you know, leveled before he went after the Democrats. I keep, I've said this before. Before Trump ran against Hillary Clinton, he took out 17 GOP establishment candidates for president by mocking and ridiculing them and simply just laying waste to you know the bush slash mccain uh power structure of the of the gop establishment he was no more i mean they didn't want him and i would put jim comey in that in that category they didn't want him to win any more than the democrats wanted him to win so you have the power structure both at the top of the FBI and the DOJ on both sides of the election, dominated by people that oh, we'll just call them anti-Trump. Not that they were, you know, anti-GOP. They were anti-Trump, and and they were desperate beginning in early August to 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 find the pony and the pile of horseshit that was Crossfire Hurricane. And Alpha was just, you know, another aspect of the same search. Looking, you know, it, they know Trump is compromised. They just have to keep digging until they find the evidence. That's why, um, you know, they're excited by the Alpha Bank Trump connection because it is a, a, a maybe an evidentiary basis that they can use to prove the existence of the connection. That they're chasing, and 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 at that point, they at that point, you know, they think it's true. I mean, these computer scientists, researchers, have fed this information to Baker, and they're at least initially banking on the computer scientists, researchers being, you know, accurate, and and not and not taking into consideration the the, the source of the information in ter- in terms of you know. Uh, having some skepticism. Chip, I think somebody must have been skeptical uh, of it because they they essentially buried that investigation, sending it off to Chicago the way they did, to the youngest, newest, uh, least experienced agent they could find. Uh, why would you do that? 
to something that's that critical. I mean, I think it's worth pointing out, and, and Ship, I'll, I'll pass to you, but I mean, it does remind me of a couple of really strong points that the government had today. I mean, they didn't just bury it uh, in Chicago. They did in- implement some basic procedures uh, pretty quickly. I mean, they really seemed to jump right on this. Uh, they got the allegations there in September, and by August, October 5th, they'd gotten started getting some information back. They they got the logs from Central Dynamics, which didn't support the existence of this covert communications channel. They uh, contacted Listrack, and the and they got some information on the configuration of the server. The server was configured for outbound only, and that that's really important because all these lookups are actually incoming lookups. These are incoming lookups from Spectrum Health and Alpha Bank, and the server is not configured to even receive them. Uh, so there, there can't be veracity to the information because the, the server would just reject them, which is exactly what happened, apparently. And, I mean, they had, they had a whole litany. They had five or six points where everything came back like, no, this is completely garbage. Like, they contracted Mandigant, and the defense tried to tie that to Alpha Bank. Uh, I don't know. They might have scored a little bit of a point there. But Mandigant is a globally recognized IT firm, uh, well-respected, who debunked it entirely. Um, they sent off the central dynamics, got the logs. That, that was completely debunked. Um, obviously, they had some internal analysis done by people like Hellman, who analyzed it, completely debunked it. I mean, nobody was supporting this data. And they knew by October 5th, October 6th, it was, it was garbage. And certainly by mid-October, uh, they knew for sure. I mean, there was just no, just nothing to it. I don't even know how they kept the investigation open until January. That, that, so. that's, hey, my po- that's my point. They kept it open till January, even right, though okay. they had totally debunked it by mid-October. Yeah, okay. Let me let me just see if I can't, you know, connect the dots a little bit here with a little bit of speculation. Uh, because, you know, I, I didn't, until this conversation, some of the facts have come out in this spaces, I didn't have all of these details in, in my head. But let's, 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 let's look at what went to, um, what Jaffe sent to Grasso, and what Sussman gave to Baker are largely the same thing, but two independent paths, I think, as King was mentioning earlier, two, two, two veins into the bloodstream to get this information, the bloodstream being the FBI. What, what Baker took from Sussman, he gave to Strzok, and I think Strzok sent that to Cyber at headquarters, and the Cyber guys, within a few hours, said, oh, this is bullshit. This, the data doesn't support the hypothesis, and you know. But I thought one of the one of the funniest things, that, and I think this was in the testimony last week. One of the, one of the funniest conclusions drawn was simply like, "Look, the Russians are sophisticated. If they wanted to have a back channel communication to Trump, they wouldn't do it this way. They do it in a way that would be hard for us to find, and this would be too easy to find. So we immediately dismiss this as being, you know, a Russian." intelligence operation because it it's just they're better than this so, yeah and, so, and all okay. covert communications channels are they always say trump email.com like that's right. that's the hallmark of a covert communications channel yeah. so so it was rejected by cyber at headquarters the same information gets injected to grasso and i don't know where grasso is, is grasso in chicago do we know Grasso was out of Pittsburgh, but my understanding is he forwarded the information that he got to Chicago, and that was the nexus that 
prompted the the opening of the investigation in okay. Chicago, is my understanding. So, so within the within the bureau tracking system, and this is information we don't have yet, in in the bureau tracking system, somebody saw the connection between the information that Baker had taken in from Sussman and the information that Grasso had taken in from Jaffe and saw, oh, look, this looks like the same stuff. So it simply became a matter. So Chicago, unlike Cyber, who said, oh, this is bullshit, we're not doing anything with this, Chicago opened it. They, they opened a, a, a full investigation just based on the face value of the information and then they did what would they would nor and, and this is count this is counterintelligence now. This is CI. So it's not cyber. In Chicago, it's a different division of the Bureau. Cyber tends to operate on the criminal side. CI operates on the intelligence side. So they're on different sides of the wall. So this is a CI squad, counterintelligence squad, and they take it in as counterintelligence, nation threat, you know, data you know, akin to Crossfire Hurricane, and they're just going to run with it. And they do all the things that they would typically normally do, all the stuff that Cyber could have done, but Cyber just pulled the plug early, recognizing that it was BS. And, and But but the young agent, uh, being told that the seventh floor is, you know, really excited about this, the young agent and her supervisor, her, her training agent and her supervisor, they run it out. And, and it ends up, you know, they run it out for three and a half, four months, and they close it out in January. Now, sometimes the closeout, I mean, that can, uh, a case can, uh, a case file, an investigation can sit dormant for several weeks or a couple of months. But the, bureau, the, the agents get up, they, they're prompted every 90 days by a computer system to update a case file. And if, if nothing has happened in the 90-day period and there's no justification for keeping it open, that leads to the communication from their supervisor, close out the following. Either close it out or make some notation in the file justification for keeping it open. So when it gets closed in January, that just might have been the end of the 90-day period. I mean, agents do this all the time. Their 90-day periods come up and they sit and they write, you know, they write closing ECs for a day and, and close out 20 files. It, it just happens. Um, so, so the timing of the closing is not necessarily magic. That's just the day the agent had to do it before the end of their 90-day period. Except the timing of the closing was, was three days before Trump was sworn in as president. And it coincides with headquarters keeping the Flynn investigation open a yeah, long time they're, past yeah, it's, its end date. There's no question. There's all kinds of suspicious activities in that December, January time frame leading up. But this is all CYA stuff at that point. You know, just like that March 6th meeting was CYA. It's like now Trump officials are running the Justice Department, and the FBI is going to have to account for what they've done over the last 10 months. Uh, a meeting in a room they never expected to find themselves in because Hillary was supposed to win, or they were supposed to actually be able to prove that Trump was a Russian agent. One of those two things was supposed to happen, and oh, by the way, neither of them happened, and so now they're in a meeting they never expected to have to own up to what they've been doing. And remember, it's 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 three weeks after that meeting, right? Or two and a half weeks after that meeting, Jim Comey stands up before the House committee and raises his hand and 
and and says, you know, the FBI is conducting a counterintelligence criminal investigation, you know, of uh, the Trump campaign. And 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 then begins upon his efforts to, you know, he's documenting his communications with Trump. He's still believing it all. He's still he's he's drank the Kool Aid by that point, and he's still believing it all. And he's remember he's working on his process that if Trump fires him, that there's going to be a special counsel appointed, and that's exactly what happened. So who at headquarters? Uh walled off any communication between Jaffe and the people in Chicago running this investigation and between uh, Dagan and the people in Chicago. I'm not sure by what you mean by walled it off. I mean, cyber just dropped it. Cyber and headquarters just dropped it. They didn't pursue it. No, no. no. The uh, woman who testified today, the person in charge of the investigation in Chicago, said she was not allowed to talk to either Dagan and never talk to Jaffe. Yeah, I, I think that kind of maybe goes to this question of whether it was, it was ordered to be closely held. And, and at that time, you know, because I remember uh, um, um, Gaynor testifying about, well, closely held would mean only, you know, Sussman or Jaffe's ID would be protected, but not necessarily the computer scientists because they weren't the source. So the source, who would not be disclosed to the working agents, so that's what it means when it's, when, it's, when it's closely held, the agents aren't told the identity of the confidential human source who provided the information, so they would not have been told it was Jaffe. But, okay, well, what about other people that prepared the data, the computer scientists? And I think Dagan testified that, well, you know, they would not have been subject to the closely held because they weren't confidential human sources. But I think the, the, the issue is, the, my guess, and again, it's just kind of trying to fill in the gaps here, would have been that the fear would have been that if she went to interview Dagan, that that interview would have disclosed Joffe's ID. Because Dagan would have said, well, we did all this shit for Joffe, and we gave the information to him. What determines closely held? That's a determination made sort of up the chain of command as to well, well, typically a CHS information is not given, identity is not given to the... To, so so Jaffe has a handler, Grasso. Jaffe might give information that produces investigations in a half dozen places all over the country. Well, Grasso is not going to go do all those investigations. The information is going to get shipped to wherever it needs to go. And the agents in those locations that get that lead, they call it an investigatory lead, the agents that get the lead aren't going to be told who the CHS is because that compromises, you know, his confidential nature. Um, unless they, unless the investigation is hindered by the closely held status. In other words, we really can't chase this out until we know who the CHS is because, oh, say they need to interview the CHS. Um, and, and so I think Graydon or Gaydon, I can't, I'll keep getting the name wrong. Uh, I think he. One of the questions he answered was he determined that the closely held status was not hindering the investigation in Chicago. In other words, the Chicago people said, "No, we don't need to know who the CHS is to do our work." Well, all of that bureaucratic, uh, yep, yep. sidestepping and backtracking and all has created a mess for Mister Durham. <laughs> 
because it, it, it came out clear today that the defense is going to argue that this investigation got short shrift <clears throat> by the FBI and they did not do a thorough job and they buried it and uh, and now they're covering it up and they're trying to blame Sussman. Uh, that's how you beat the government trial. I mean, I, I mean, that's how you beat the government trial. You, you don't prove your client is factually innocent. You prove that the government's investigation is so flawed or amateurish or incompetent that the jury shouldn't have any confidence in the theory the prosecution is trying to press upon them. One one clarification is Grasso did work out of the Chicago uh, Regional Computer Crime Area. That's probably it. That, that's probably yep. it. There's some regional component for certain types of crimes where multiple field offices share, you know, responsibilities. But I, I don't know the details of those. And, and then you also have the uh, Mueller uh, 302 dump that showed um, on October 4th of 2016, some female walked into the Chicago office and gave a bunch of information about the purported connections there. I, I suspect that was probably Gene Camp. Um, based upon the proximity and some other factors there. Um, but Allison Sands, you got to assume, was probably in that meeting there as well. That's pretty interesting. I don't, I don't think that came out in trial today. I think um, we have the allegations from Joffe being given to Grasso. We have Sussman giving it to Baker. And then that would be another avenue that they tried to feed the information into uh, the FBI. So that, if that's true, that's pretty interesting. I'll, I'll have to pull up that. That memo. Yeah, I that, tweeted that out the 302 be. there, and and so it's it's unclear for sure. But you know, Gene fits in the spaces. April also fits in the spaces, but it was definitely a female. Um, mm. You know, a week and a half after it was pop, you know, bubbling up in D.C., it was bubbling up in Chicago. So you know, they got played clearly. We it's were amazing. trying to figure out why, if it was Camp, which we don't know, but it does seem to fit. Why she would have gone to Chicago. Uh, if she's in Indianapolis or at uh, University of Indiana. And if she went because Grasso was there and she went to Grasso because Jaffe was being handled by Grasso, that would make sense. Yep. Yeah, I, I think that's good conjecture. I think that's probably um, that's probably right, but we'll have to have to get more information. Obviously, I, I just wanted to point out for everybody, I just shared a tweet to this chat. And apparently, I mean, Rodney Jaffe wrote a letter to A.G. Uh, Garland three months ago asking him to fire John Durham. I mean, that, <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of guy that we're, we're talking yeah. about here. So Yeah, I saw that too. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. With respect to this issue about the second source there in Chicago, this is Leslie. Hellman testified last week that, you know, about this stuff. And then Berkowitz, the defense lawyer, crossing that, examined him asking him if he knew that the Chicago team had received this second stream of information from a female. And he implied that that was the reason that the Chicago counterintelligence folks opened a full investigation after Hellman and Batty had declined to open any investigation. I don't think the timing works out, at least if, if that 302 is accurate on 4 October the EC for opening it was a week and a half prior. 
I mean, theoretically, right. they could have opened, they could have written the 302 later. I mean, we saw that with uh, Flynn's case where they wrote the, the 302 like two weeks after the interview. I, I'm not it saying re- that's the case, but it, it references the date of the interview. In. Yeah, it I gotcha. the date of her interview. But it's yeah. interesting. Berkowitz is trying to put that in front of the jury, though, right? Like he implied that that these DC guys kind of faffed it off and they didn't have all the information the Chicago people did. And that's why they opened a full investigation. I mean, that's really incredible to have yet another information flow that they're trying to get this information into the FBI um, to have another uh, member of this, you know, I'll call it a conspiracy, um, trying to feed information to the FBI. Uh, that's pretty, pretty amazing. Well, Phil Bunch um, at the Post says that, you know, that's not what happened. That what happened, you know. <laughs> The, the, everyone was all over this Russia thing anyway. You know, it's not like Hillary's team really ginned it up. I mean, the, those those fuckers are just incredible. <laughs> I I have to agree. I mean, there's there's so there's so many ties and there's so many questions that are so easily asked by that time. I mean, you have like Report One Twelve, which you know they say they got from David Corn a little bit later, but I mean, even the white paper, uh, the overview. Uh, white paper of Elf Bank that they got. I mean that that has strong vibes of of the Steele dossier, and you know the, there had to be a couple of people that connected the dots. Like, hey, we're getting all these reports. Uh, they seem really similar in their context and their style. Maybe we should ask the question: like, is this all politically connected? Or I don't know. I'm just. Did you guys see anything today that explained why the EC says the referral was from DOJ? Yeah. Yeah. So Alison Sands was up there and she, I mean, it's a mistake, but her understanding at the time was basically that it was Rodney Joffe's information uh, that flowed to the Department of Justice on a referral and then the Department of Justice gave that information to the FBI. So that's what she wrote yeah, on the EC. But she got, I know, but who'd she get that from? Because that's the part that's not coming clear. Who told her that? Uh, that was Hyde that told her. Heidi told her that? Okay, yeah, well, who Heidi. told him? Right. Because, yeah. you know, this is what I want to know, is which one of these idiots decided that that's how they were going to handle this? It has to be Baker or Strzok or Price Step, right? Yeah, and I think they did ask that question today of who told Heidi, and I think she answered something on the fact of the FBI leadership told them that. Right, leadership. Yep. Okay. <laughs> well, that's only about <laughs> five or six people. I mean, you know, it's just, it's astonishing to me. Bill, what do you think of that? That that, that EC is actually has an inaccurate piece of information in it as to the commencement of the investigation. It's outrageous. Here's my, here's my supposition on that. As I said before, James Baker was a DOJ guy. He's yeah. not an FBI guy. He came over after a career at DOJ. And within the Bureau, you oftentimes will have the agent class refer to seventh floor people from DOJ as DOJ people. Yeah. They never accept them as part of the Bureau. As part of the Bureau. That's true. There are just DOJ implants in the executive suite. I so wondered I if they e- met Sussman, but you're right. They could have met Baker. I could easily see somebody saying, oh, it came from James Baker, the DOJ guy who's now general mm-hmm. counsel. Right. And then, you know, somebody That's just... That's what goes know, in it, the 
EC, right. Exactly. That's what, when I read it, that was my first reaction. And, <laughs> and you know, the, the thing, and, and the thing to also, also remember about ECs, and, you know, we heard a lot about the EC and Crossfire Hurricane. Not a lot of effort gets put into <laughs> writing an EC because they have no, they have no consequence. The right. only thing the EC does is it gives legal authorization to the agents to begin to exercise their law enforcement authorities. And it says that, you know, like Peter Strzok had to get the EC written before he could fly to London so that he could get paid for flying to London. Right. Yeah, so all the paperwork makes makes sense. Right, this is something I was telling people when back in the Flynn days, is that this kind of stuff almost never gets into your criminal case, right? I've never had a case where the EC came into evidence Right. That just doesn't happen. It doesn't matter for ninety nine point nine percent of the time. So but it's just astonishing to me that that's that's, that's actually a piece of false information in the EC. <laughs> My and, God. and they don't even really ever refer to it as the EC. Right. They refer the, to it as the opening. Right. Those it's are the, the agents call. It's the yeah. opening communication. It's the OC. Right. It's right. the one that opens the case and gets them their authority to proceed and to and to begin to conduct their investigative exercise under the diog um so you know the the kind of the the public sort of outsider's fascination with what's in an ec and when it was mm -hmm. written and what was said it's like nobody pays attention to those details yeah, right leslie what do you think about the idea that this young new staffer in Chicago is writing the EC and taking charge of the investigation. Now, mind you, this is an investigation of a presidential candidate. Right. Uh, a little bit more than a month before the election. And that's something all of them have, have sworn to Congress was the highest sensitivity, uh, something closely held in, on the seventh floor at headquarters. Only a small handful of people knew about it. I'm talking about crossfire here, hurricane. Right. Well, well, now you've got this, yeah, now, that you've, now you've got this potential nuclear bomb off in the hands of a wet-behind-the-ears, brand-new novice agent in Chicago. Right. They're trying to make that work by not telling her or Hellman either who it was, what we, what it was really about. Right. Like they're trying to have it both ways. They want to keep the close hold on what's actually going on, but yet, you, you know, get what they're, I guess they're thinking is more objective analysis if the people actually doing the forensic work don't know what's going on. It's bizarre, I think. I mean, it, this isn't like forensic, actual forensic work. Right. Where if you make, say, certain things to the examiner, you're maybe making suggestions that invade the objectivity of the work. Right. This is the kind of analysis where who the source is makes a difference. She testified to that today. So I'm astonished to hear people saying, oh, well, you know, it did, we didn't want them to know because it didn't matter. Well, she got up there on the witness stand today and said that the motivation of the source would, of course, made a difference. I mean, I just, it just astonishes me, the whole thing. I took it as, as, as evidence that they didn't 
wanted known. They, they suspected something was funny, uh, but they didn't want it out. Uh, so well, it's twofold, I think. Right. Yeah. They don't want to spread around. And also, I think they don't trust their own people. Right. And they saw what happened with the Hillary email thing and Comey's press conference and all of that. Right. So they don't want to. Again, I think Baker is telling the truth about this. They don't want to be seen as trying to influence the political process. But then you end up doing it anyway because you're trying so hard not to. It's perverse. I, th I think there's a good possibility they were looking for the answer that they wanted. And if cyber didn't tell them the right answer, then they said, OK, we'll send it out to, you know, I got a there's a tech savvy somebody in Chicago that let's let's run it by them and see if they give us what we want to hear. Well, from what Hellman testified and I I went to the court that day and, and saw him testify in person. He seemed to be sent, truthfully saying that that was the plan the whole time is that they wanted both divisions to look at it because it involved allegedly foreign influence. So they wanted um, uh, counterintelligence to look at it. But since it involved the kind of data that it was, they also wanted cyber, which is on the criminal side, to look at it. So I think that was the plan all along. It's a good conversation there. I didn't want to interrupt. Uh, JH, I see you have your hand up. I don't know if you have a, wherever you want to go ahead. It was about Sands. You know, it's it's like you have this new, I wasn't aware that she was a new agent on the job until here the spaces, but you know, a new agent, uh, three months into the job, it's easy to, to confuse a new agent like that. It's easy to mislead a new agent like that. It's uh, probably easy to manipulate a new agent like that. And if somehow it was sort of planted, you know, that uh, she should say that this, you know, information came from the DOJ and she wrote, wrote out the, the, the EC without even thinking about it. Um, the interesting thing is, you know, the, the thing that, that makes me suspicious about all that is, is that, you know, I've heard that th this EC was then widely circulated and many, many people on the seventh floor and around the DOJ saw this EC, you know, yet no one spoke up and said, hey, no, this didn't come from the DOJ. We all know this came from Michael Sussman. You know, or it, it just, it, it's like it's another one of those tools that was implemented so everybody could pretend that they didn't know what was going on. You know, and even though they all knew it was there, nobody said anything about it. And it's it's kind of interesting to me that if, that if Durham loses this case, you know, it, it's going to be because, like like Ship said, that the... Uh, um, Sussman's team is able to basically indict the FBI in all of this. And it's, I almost get the feeling like the FBI is so good at lying and making up stories to cover itself that, <laughs> you know, that, that, that Sussman's been fed a line of BS. He knows it's BS or not Sussman. I'm sorry. Durham's been fed a line of BS and knows it's BS, but, uh, at the same time, it's been a consistent line of BS and he has to accept it to prosecute his case. You know, and I'm just wondering, you know, if, if he loses this case because Sussman points out all this stuff that doesn't work out, does Durham turn around and start doing process crimes against FBI agents that fed him a line of BS? You know, it, it's sort of, I don't know. Yeah, and I think that kind of ties in with what Gaynor was kind of being impeached for by the defense on, on cross-examination. I mean, he was really impressive in direct testimony, but then, you know, he's getting... He was getting lit up about his mm -hmm. recollections and, um, you know, they were asking him, 
you know, he was essentially like the gatekeeper. And he was like right. withholding the information from field agents because he said this was closely held. And then the defense just dropped this bomb just out of nowhere, right in the middle of their cross-examination, where it was like, well, your status in the investigation changed from witness to a subject as the result of your October 2020 interview with John Durham, didn't it? And he's like, yeah, it did. And it was like, <laughs> yeah. I was like, wait a minute, what? Right. They did that to Hellman, too. They, they dropped shit on him in cross-examination <laughs> that the government should have covered in their direct. Exactly. I, That's the I point I wanted astonished. to make. Yeah. yeah. They're not litigating this case very well. Now, I'm a defense lawyer, and I look at the world that way. But honestly, they're, they're not doing a good job with these witnesses. They're underprepared. I don't know how that can be. Yeah, I mean, that's especially, the... especially with like four prosecutors in a one count right. case. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if... I, I mean, I tried a case all by myself that took three months. Yeah, seriously. Right. I know. It looks to me like some of these people refused to prep with them, like Price Step. Been... Yeah, I don't think yeah. he agreed to prep with them. And I know that Dijon guy didn't. God, he was scary, you guys. He was like Nazi concentration camp guy right like i'm just following orders i just do what i'm told uh, okay even though it makes no sense and is contrary to the interests of your customers well he's the boss okay then <laughs> i mean whoa let me let me mention this the idea you know we, we have references to the seventh floor and and i'm just this is like off the top of my head but you know when when that reference is used understand you're talking about like six or seven people right and their staffs not talking about you know a, a, a crowd of a hundred on the seventh floor. You're talking about the director, the deputy director, the general counsel, the, the chief of staff. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 assistant directors over counterintelligence and criminal. Right. Uh, you know. So so it's not a big crowd that is the reference to the seventh floor, um, and, and so just sort of you know, and, and it's all the usual suspects. It's all the people that we've we've heard about. For, for so long. It would not include somebody like Strzok. He would have been on the sixth floor. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if he was actually on the sixth floor or not, but you know, the seventh floor is the leadership of the FBI. And there's a limited number of people in that location. So he stands... You know, I think they stand a good chance of losing this. I, I don't like the way it's going. Now, Baker, I guess, did okay. Right? Better than I thought he was going to. But I don't see, know. What do you guys think? Yeah, see, I think the problem is they're they're trying they're trying their narrative instead of trying their case. Mm. You know, it's like uh, I don't know if you were on earlier when I said, uh, "Why is it going to take three weeks to try a case that's about a conversation <laughs> that a, a meeting that took thirty minutes? Well, it's a meeting that took thirty minutes. I know. <laughs> I know. It's insane. This should be a three or four day trial tops. It's yeah. insane that it's two weeks or three. It's crazy. But he's but they're trying a narrative, and yeah. and I and which makes me wonder what their real motive is here. Do they really care if they convict Sussman or not, or are they more interested in getting all of this information out in the public record because of the impact it might have on others? Maybe, because honest to goodness, I do not understand why they didn't take the sting out of a number of these witnesses. It, it's like they didn't think through what the cross examination was going to be. And even small points look really bad when the defense lawyer brings them up for the first time, right, in the middle of the guy's cross-examination. The jury's, you know, they 
they get more reaction that sticks with them, the reaction of what a bombshell it was going off in the courtroom than they do with even what the information was. So I just, I've been astonished little things like their first witness was their expert. And she, Bill, did you see this? She didn't even say what field they were offering him as an expert in. The judge had to ask her. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, I would have just started with, I think I said this in a little spatially. It's like, I'd have started with, whoa, what's Crossfire Hurricane? Why was the FBI interested in, in Russia in the summer of 2016? You know, an agent. You know, why did this Alpha Bank material, why was it important when it came in? Right, exactly. Well, it it was the important. They didn't yeah. start with any background, no context, nothing. They put this expert up who bored the shit out of people, right, for an hour about DNS stuff. And the jury needs to know that, but not your first witness. Good God. Right. I mean, I just, I just don't understand. <laughs> I don't. It's a famous movie scene somewhere. Like I want to, you know, you want to, like, has anybody played this game before? Right, exactly. <laughs> Seriously, right. You guys, my husband is an old prosecutor himself, and he's he's watching, he's listening to me, tell him about what's going on, right? And he's like, it's like they don't have any trial lawyers trying this case, right? That's my impression. It, it, it this is foreign to anybody who's. Stand up there, right? I know it's bizarre. Yeah, but you, well, what, you remember remember what? the Kleinsmith issue, right? Kleinsmith was a complete disaster, and a few of us flagged it up, and everyone else was saying, "Oh, this is four D chess or forty eight D chess or whatever." And he's he's he, Durham is finding out more stuff behind the scenes, whatever. And you know, a few of us were saying, "No, this is this is bullshit." He's he's he charged the guy with just some minor, absolute minor kind of, you know, traffic ticket offense. And he left out the big offense, right. the, the Russian based Kleinsmith put in the fucking FISA that Danchenko was Russian based. That, that's the key. That's everything. If he had put right. in, no, no, actually, he wasn't Russian based. He was a Brookings Institution guy in D.C. <laughs> right. The judge would have said, if, if the judge had read it or the judge's mm. clerks or whatever, mm-hmm. yeah, really? That, that, right. was the key. that was the key. That was the key. And it was not in there. And, you know, a bunch of us flagged it up. Like, why the hell isn't that in there? And then I, I, I you know, I got pushback. Oh, you know, Durham is playing 48D chess or whatever. No, he, he just fucked it up. And, you know, frankly, I think Either that the same thing is happening get, again. They couldn't get Kleinsmith's lawyers who actually, you know, I've dealt with them, uh, obviously, from through Carter's case. Kleinsmith had good lawyers. Um, and, you, you know, maybe they wouldn't agree that that was a false statement. And, and Durham didn't want to spend a lot of resources proving that. I don't know. I'm just guessing there. But what I will say is, having dealt with Durham's lawyers in the sentencing phase of Kleinsmith's case, they knew what they were doing. They were two experienced guys. One was from the U.S. Attorney's Office here, and the other one was from Connecticut, right? Their pleadings were good. Their arguments were good. This, I didn't agree with all of their positions, especially on whether Carter was a victim. But, you know, but they were appropriately lawyering the case. I, therefore, am astonished at sort of the low level of quality of trial skills of this team. Well, I'm astonished that having had such a low view of the Kleinsmith issue, <laughs> we, we've gone way below there. You know? Right. I know. But it's just like basic stuff. You're just like, oh. 
there's no old hand on the team telling them who somebody who's tried somebody like Bill, right. Or somebody like my husband, who's you guys, my husband tried over a hundred jury trials. 20 of them were murders. He prosecuted, right? Like they needed somebody like that on their team to be like, no knuckleheads, your order of call does not start with your expert. I mean, I would add to this, even sitting in there today, when they had really strong arguments to make, they went way too fast. And, you know, I am much more versed in this than any juror that's out there. And I was really, really struggling to keep up with what they were saying. And every time I was like, oh, that's a really good point. They flew into the next (laughs) point. Like there was no there's no emphasis and no follow up. I was like in the right place. And then they're belaboring details that you don't give a crap about and confusing the shit out of people. Absolutely. I know. That's how Monday was or Tuesday was last week, too. It was just unbelievable. So. I really think like they need like a strong witness that they're going to end on, like a witness that's basically yeah, going to let that them. Be now? They should have yeah, started exactly. with bias and ended with Baker, but that's not yeah. what we're doing, right? I no. feel like I feel like they never put the screws to any of their witnesses. Exactly, they did. <laughs> you know, and, and that's the problem. They just accepted anything that these witnesses presented as the truth. Right. I agree, especially for people that didn't prep with you, which some of them that was obvious. They should have really just gone after them and hammered them with documents. Right. The document says what it says. You can say whatever you want from the fucking witness stand. But the document says on this day, you said X, Y, Z. Right. So but they didn't do that. They did not go after those folks. So I I just I'm perplexed. I will just say I'm perplexed at this performance. So so am I completely perplexed. On the other hand, on the Danchenko um, side of things, they do have their ducks in a row. Um. They they have him dead to rights, and um, the, you know I, I guess there's a few things I can't say here, but you know the, it just seems very different. Mm-hmm. So what I well, I'm, I'm I don't know. I mean I'm just wondering why on earth is it so incompetent here, and it seems <laughs> so competent on the other side. Is, right. me, is let, there some scheme? You know I, let, I don't yeah, know. Let me suggest what I think it might be. Both Klein Smith and Sussman, they were trapped into venue in the district. The 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 offense the events the offense conduct happened in the district. Yeah. They couldn't right. file they couldn't file it anywhere else. Right. They were gonna get a DC jury right. and they were gonna have a DC judge. Right. And they did not go there with Danchenko. You know, right. They took that over in the Eastern District of Virginia when they could. So the DC trials are sort of throwaways and and well so they're certainly of, treating this like this one like it is I, almost to the point where they're throwing it i hate to say that because i don't really think it's that bad but honest to god some of it i just uh, despair of well that would that would explain why they're trying their narrative instead of their case yeah they don't really so. they don't expect to win and so they aren't banking on winning they're banking <laughs> on getting they're okay. banking on getting as much evidence in the public record as they conceivably can get, which, you know, that goes along with, oh, the defense is going to call Eric Lickplow? Well, let's talk about all the people we want to ask Eric Lickplow who he talked to and what they right. said. Right. You know, that's more, you know, that's why they're, they're really just so far out to the margins on on um, uh, relevance yeah. under 403 on some of this stuff. It's like, yeah. 
it raises like why are you doing this you've got to have an <laughs> well, ulterior exactly motive to do with this right I know. Is, is there a possibility that this case is being used just to get all these fbi agents and the fbi narrative on the record so they can be exposed in later cases i mean it, it sounds like that's way you know like in the weeds and everything but it is is that even a possibility I, I think I that's only a possibility. I don't think we're going to see Allison Sands ever again, right? Like that, she's done. We're done with her. Right. But no, I think that's it's 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 it has it serves a function in terms of the report right. that Durham's going to write. This is now public testimony for right. purposes of his report. Um, right. But I don't know that it's a found, it's not right. a foundation for later prosecutions of people in the FBI that. You know, I think that ship has largely sailed um, by statutory statute limitations grounds. But I don't think, you know, from early on, Durham ever really thought those were prosecutable claims because, you know, again, we got to go. We always got to circle back to the question. I know a lot of people disagree with this, but the FBI rank and file, by and large, was doing their job. They may have been doing it badly. They may have been biased in their approach. But on a day-to-day basis, they were largely simply doing their job. And you're not going to prosecute them for crimes for that. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, I, I think, you know, like when you testify before a grand jury, you basically lock in your position and you lock in the history of what you claim happened. You know, and I, I kind of see like this case could potentially be locking in the FBI into into what they did, what happened, all the stuff surrounding that. In these later cases, you know, they could they could come around and expose, you know, and just use it but to most blow of these witnesses open. don't look to me like they have much to do with that, with the possible yeah. exception of price step. Right. And he sounded like he he knew exactly how to be useless on the witness stand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sounded an awful lot like fuck you testimony to me today. I, I would say if tactically Durham has any thought in his head that, well, this is a throwaway case politically, that could be a disaster because at some point the attorney general could step in and say, all right, you lost a simple false statements case. You made a mockery of the FBI. This whole thing is a mess. I'm shutting you down. <laughs> and any thought of a conspiracy case goes out the window. Yeah. And if I was Durham, I'd say it's because an FBI agent, the FBI general counsel withheld evidence from me. <laughs> You know, and it's like the evidence that would have made yeah. the case. Sure. Tell your story walking, though, Durham, because you're you're done. <laughs> File your report and we'll we'll do what we want with it. But yeah. even in terms of the presentation, like, OK, Bill, so let's say the the whole thing with why they were keeping the source away from the agents. Why didn't they explain that before they put Hellman on the witness stand last week? Because he was only the second witness and the defense was hammering him with questions about that. It makes it sound like there's something really nefarious going on. Why is Durham? Why wouldn't Durham's team have explained what that was first? Yeah, no, you that know, was terrible. As it was, was awful. The, <laughs> as was the the whole narrative that was uh, basically presented in the first five minutes of opening statements. Our FBI, our FBI was duped. They were the victims. <laughs> you don't do that if you have all these instances following up from then in the in the past few days where the FBI was, well, they weren't duped at, at you know, in, in the most right. charitable the view. It would have been that they tried to dupe them, but we didn't fall for it. That might exactly. have worked. Yeah. Exactly. 
exactly right. So the whole FBI was duped was was not a good starting point because we found out since that no, they weren't duped. You know, the most charitable view is that there were a couple of idiots in the FBI, but there were also really a bunch of bad apples there. So it, it doesn't make sense. None of this makes sense. Uh, I, to be honest, I, I put it down to just, you know, poor resources. Um, not enough people didn't think it through. I, I, I wish I could say, oh, this is some 48D chess move, uh, but, yeah. but I don't see it. No, I don't think so either. But I am just astonished that sort of the level of the quality of the of the work is less than it should be, regardless of whether you think you're getting it convicted or not. Um, and, you know, the D.C. jury, that's a problem. The, the jury voir dire clear, show, showed that really clearly, right? Um, you know, Cooper wasn't giving them anything, which he should have. He should have struck a number of those witnesses for cause, right? He had more more people in the veneer. He could have kept going. But, you know... <laughs> So, you know, there's a lot of problems with trying this kind of case in that courthouse, but still there's no excuse for some of the things that they're doing that are, it's just obvious under preparation. Well, there in particular, because as, as some, someone else just said, what's going to happen if, and when this guy gets acquitted, it's like, okay, you got to shut it down. And in everything else we just talked about and all these other revelations, they, they just kind of, they go away. Let's and we're never going to hear about it again. Right. Now, of course, if the case against Denshinko goes well, that's, I think we all agree, that's the more important case anyway. Um, then, you know, maybe that counterbalances it. And they will have a way <laughs> easier time in the EDBA. True, but Danchenko is such a slam dunk <laughs> for all these establishment people because remember, he is the he is the Russian agent. Yeah, we were duped by the Russians. It was all Russian disinformation. I know. Well, in terms of whether there'll be another prosecution, one thing that got my attention in this case, uh, if you guys follow me on Twitter, maybe you saw it, was you know if Steele if they turned over Jenks material for Steele and had him on their witness list then he clearly can't be part of a conspiracy that they either already have indicted or they're planning to. So I don't know what that says about whether there's anything else coming. I don't have any inside scoop on that, I will say. Um, yeah, I had I had a similar reaction when Elias took the stand so willingly and answered yeah, every question. It's like, well, exactly. that means he's not, he's not getting charged anywhere. Right, and he knows it. Yeah. Yeah. Why couldn't they just go after, I mean, this is small potatoes, but Jaffe and Sussman were apparently engaged in a conspiracy. At least it would have been something more than this, you know, single false statement charge, unless they unless they just didn't have the, the goods on it. Sounds like they might still charge Jaffe um, for major fraud under 1030, because I think they are good and pissed that he used all of that, what should have been it's not classified, but what it should have been non-public information that wasn't to be used for the, the things he was doing with it. So I won't be surprised if they do charge him. Um, and then whether Sussman is involved in that, but unlikely. Um, but that's the one thing that looks to me that is likely. Um, and I'm not even sure of that. Well, you know, something that did come out, I think in, in uh, this was just an aside, uh, in the conversation about Leak Plow before Leak Plow before it all started this morning, 
um, there was a reference to the Fusion GPS people having uh, invoked the fifth. Right. And so they've never been immunized. They've invoked the fifth. I, I think, you know, I, I still think they're probably a target uh, along with um, with Joffrey. Right. Uh, it seems that way, doesn't it? So Yeah, because they're mysteriously absent. They're certainly not going to testify for either side, and I'm sure that's because they've all invoked the fifth. And, and 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 Durham is not anxious to give any of them, uh, and, and that specifically goes to that meeting uh, that he gave Laura Sego, uh, right, uh, Im- immunity over, which had Sussman, Elias, Seagal, Frisch, and Simpson. I think. Yeah, I think that's right. What. What do you do the prosecutors do if they charge Jaffe? What do they do with the FBI monkey business about turning him into two different unconnected sources? You mean like through this stuff that happened today where it seems like he's <laughs> he's sort of the source for the Chicago office and the DC? That's the, it. The yes. Philly office? Yes, he's a, he's a CHS, right? Yeah, commenting on he's also the anonymous on, on source. His stuff. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's a mess. It's just a mess. Um, and it it'll give whoever his lawyers are. Uh, is it Steve Tyrell, his lawyer? Um, you know, yes. more stuff to throw up and be like, yeah, well, you know, they can't even shoot straight these cops. So how are you listening to their testimony and believing this nonsense? But. On the other hand, people can, uh, unlike a 1001 case where people can identify with the defendant because they think to myself, themselves, shit, I might have said stuff to an agent if I were talking to him too. Of course, Baker's not an agent, but just in general, 1001s I think are hard. But, you know, misusing information that you only have access to because you're kind of a government contractor, that tends to piss people off a little more. Um, so maybe they'll cut the bureau some more slack than they're going to in in a 1001 but i agree with you it's definitely a problem it's a problem the way the bureau handled it yeah i'm, I'm but, gonna i'm gonna jump off here i've been on for a couple hours yeah, now but uh, i did want to uh, 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 say that um i got a win this morning got uh Ooh, judge yes. Roseberg to release right. uh, a defendant a january 6th defendant named brian mock who's been in custody for 11 months turned that around today and, and let me give you just a quick quick example of what i found there this is this is a sort of uh, underscores what we're talking about here. The FBI agent in that case interviewed one of the Capitol Police officers, and in her 302 in mid-May 2021, she wrote that the Capitol Police officer injured his elbow when he was struck during the melee and caused excruciating pain. That's in the 302 of her interview. And she showed him the video of the episode that my client's charged with. A month later, in the complaint affidavit that she filed to get my client arrested and has been the basis for holding him in jail, she wrote that the officer struck his elbow on the ground, causing him excruciating pain as a result of my client pushing him down. A month a month between the 302, which says he was struck by a blow during the melee, and then later she says it was when his elbow hit the ground. No explanation for that change. That's the FBI. Yeah. 
That's crazy. That's the allegation that uh, that he that the officer was injured by my client's conduct, which was kept him in jail. Yeah, right. Right. You've been doing amazing work on that ship, and and I've been following it a little bit, and it's it's just amazing what you've you've been able to do. And I was fortunate enough to catch a conference call of you at work there a couple of months ago, and that was just just brilliant thing to to watch. And I understand there's a January sixth legal fund that um, can support the work that you're doing and providing the legal fund. Uh, funds for for that defense, right? Yeah, yeah. None of my clients can you know independently fund their own defense, so they are paying what they can pay, and we're using fundraising efforts both by the clients and a national uh, you know legal defense fund. You can find it on my Twitter site uh, or over on Truth. My I got verified on Truth Social, and it just, the case the, the site's just gone crazy. I went from a thousand. <laughs> followers to 9,000 followers in a day, then Cash Patel re-truthed something that I posted, and he's got 600,000 followers, and that went crazy. So I don't, I'm not going to pitch the fund here, but if anybody wants to go look for it, they can find it on my profile page on either one. The link is up in the nest for anybody interested. Yeah, right. and for anybody who doesn't know, Bill's doing good work there. Marina Medvin is doing really good work for those folks. Um I didn't take any of those cases because I'm writing about them for Red State and also because I'm tied up with Carter's case and some yeah. other things. But Which is Marina, and, <laughs> Marina and Bill are doing really good work for those guys. Yeah, I, 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 every month I make an effort to drag Leslie into one or more of my <laughs> cases and sooner or later she's going to say yes. Right. Yeah. So hmm. behind the scenes, I'll say um, I'm, I'm offering commentary, let's let's say. But I'm not, I'm, my name is not on any of those pleadings. So but he's right. Bill is doing a great job. So. All right. Thanks, everybody. Hi, See I you go next to. time. Bye, guys. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Uh, let's see here. So if anybody else wants to speak, go ahead and request. FOIA fan, Walk of Fire. I see you guys are hanging out here. I don't know if you have anything you want to share. Um, otherwise, I might take a few questions here. Oops. Sorry, guys. I'm all over the place here. I got something. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> this goes back to last Friday. Something struck me. Uh, kind of made me smile. Or uh, we've, we've talked badly about the job that Durham and his lawyers have, or his, his legal team has done in court. But there was one episode Friday that they should be proud of. Uh, I think uh, this was, uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Um, Al Gore? Al Gore, yeah. Al Gore took, <clears throat> took the CIA witnesses uh, on examination. And he got... Uh, let me step back. The way of background, there's always a concern when you put on evidence like they have of these largely irrelevant pieces of data uh, supposedly representing evidence of nefarious contacts between Trump and Russia. 
the veracity, the reliability of that data, the judge has held is not an issue in the case. And he doesn't want to hear much of it, if any. And so the, the concern for the prosecution is that the jury will hear snippets of it and come away thinking that the FBI had in its hand the, a nuclear bomb relating to Trump, and they either mishandled it or buried it, <clears throat> did something really bad, and Sussman's not to blame. It's the FBI. Part of that evidence went to the CIA in February 2017, and it consisted largely of uh, Yodaphone data, Russian cell phone data, supposedly collected uh, via DNS lookups uh, of, uh, as having originated in or around Trump Tower, in or around the executive office uh, complex, uh, including the White House, uh, when Trump was there. So somebody, the, the suspicion is that somebody connected with Trump was calling home to Russia every, everywhere he went. <clears throat> and that's how Sussman kind of pitched it when he took it to the FBI. And it was clear that the judge wasn't going to hear any evidence as to whether that theory was right or wrong. It's the theory that was presented, and we're not going to be trying that theory. Mr. Al Gore did a tap dance. I don't know if anybody saw the movie Chicago with Richard Gere. There's a, there's a scene, he plays the Chicago sleazy lawyer defending a murder case. And there's a scene where he cross-examines a uh, key witness and interspersed in his cross-examination, he does a tap dance. So he taps a little, asks a, que a pointed question, taps some more. That's what Al Gore did because he got that CIA guy to testify that, oh yeah, they brought this uh, data to me about Alphabet. And that's all he did to describe what Sussman brought him. He didn't mention Yodaphones. He didn't mention new data. He didn't mention exactly what it was. But he did say Sussman told him that it's not what he brought to the FBI. Maybe, you know, kind of similar, but not really related. And but it had to do with Alpha Bank. You read his testimony, and I did, and you come away with the impression, and I'm sure he, they left, the jury was left with this impression, that Sussman lied to, uh, uh, to the CIA guy about having brought the same information to the FBI. It, it sounded like it was identical when we know it really wasn't. But Al Gore kind of did a little tap dance, got that in, in that fashion, and the defense didn't correct it. 
didn't didn't do anything to say, wait a minute, there was some more stuff that had that he couldn't have brought to the FBI because it didn't match up time wise. Uh, so it, the record is there. It sounds like they flat out Sussman flat out lied, hundred percent, as to having brought it to the FBI before. So I thought, you know, oh, at at least they see the issues and did what they could to avoid raising new issues that they can't deal with, like the Yoda phone. Uh, I don't know what they'd have done if they'd have drugged that into the courtroom. Okay, that's all I have. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. And, and as you kind of raised, I mean, I think Durham's actually been able to do that a couple times where, you know, in the pretrial motions, we, you know, it looked like Durham wasn't really going to be able to attack the veracity of the data itself. But then you, we saw last week Hellman get up there and he's like, no, I debunked this within a day. Like, this data is totally garbage. Um, so I think they are able to translate that into the jury. I mean, through witness testimony, they're able to introduce suspicion on the data itself, which obviously um, really changes the, the narrative, right? I mean, did Sussman bring fake data or was it real data? Well, it you know, we don't know what Sussman knew. We don't know his state of mind. But, I mean, it certainly sounds worse when the data's fake and it, it's so easily debunked. Um, it does change, I think, the perception, at least in the, in the jurors' minds, I, I would hope. No, I, I think that's right. Um, I, I think one point that we haven't mentioned so far is that um, Durham is clearly underfunded. He's clearly undermanned. Um, compare what happens with Durham and with what happened with Mueller, right? He's like, Durham is, his, his funding is about 10% or less, 5% or something like that of what uh, Mueller got, or Mueller, whatever his name is. And it shows, it just shows, you know, you, you cannot run these kinds of trials against um, opponents who are funded better. And, and obviously Sussman is for, you know, the reasons that, that we know. So that, that, that kind of shows you that, that that's a real problem. And the question is, why hasn't Durham flagged it up? Why didn't Barr fund him properly? Why didn't Barr ensure that this was going to be okay? Now, we still got, uh, we're still waiting for, for um, listeners who, who remember about Technofog, right? He was still going to do a story on what's going on there. Um, in the background at DOJ and, you know, we're, I know a bit about it too. And, you know, we're waiting for that story to come through. It, it's a problem. You cannot run, you cannot go against the, the machine, the Clinton machine, the democratic machine. You cannot go against these people if you're underfunded and if you're understaffed. And that's clearly what, what we have, what we have here with, with Durham. Um, I don't, I don't have the answer. I don't know what the, the, the grander plan is or whatever. I can just say for sure that it, that's the case. That, that's, what, that's what we're looking at. And I, I wish it wasn't the case, but that, that, it, it, that is what it is. If you look at his half-year funding sort of uh, bills that he submits to DOJ, it's like $1 million, $2 million or whatever. If you look at Mueller, it was $42 million. You know, huge difference. Remember how Trump always talked about the 17 Democratic uh, 
high-powered lawyers, well, that was an understatement. There were more. And with Durham, we're talking about three, four. Uh, the guy that um, King just talked about, Al Gore, right? <laughs> he's, he's actually moonlighting. He's, he's doing another case somewhere else. So th th these are m massive problems. And um, I, I, don't under I, I, I wish I could say there was some big scheme, there was some big plan, there was some idea behind that, why this is the case and this is all thought through or whatever. Um, but unfortunately, I can't say that. I, I don't think it is. I, I think it's just not enough money, not enough people. Yeah, and I mean, I guess I always bring up this point when, when you raise that. I mean, that's up to Durham. I mean, if Durham needs more money, if he needs more staff, he has to ask for it. And you know what? If he gets political pushback, that's when he just has to issue a simple press release and just say, you know, hey, I, my investigation continues, maybe even do like an interim report. But regardless, like issue like, hey, I'm continuing this investigation uh, due to political in interference. Uh, I cannot predict the, the timeline or whatever. Like even a simple statement like that would just blow up in the media. And that's it. Like you can get all the money you want, but like I don't want to hear excuses once once this is all over. If he misses statutes of limitations, or if he misses crimes that you and I and everybody else can can easily identify, which is my biggest fear, and then you know we have to ask him like, hey, why didn't you prosecute this? And he says, well, it's, you know, statute of limitations or resources or anything like that. Like that is completely unacceptable. Like that that is going to be worse for this country than. Him just, you know, cutting and running right now and not even doing a report. I mean, I would rather, I, I would, I, you know, being facetious here, like, I would rather the truth be out there. But, but honestly, like, I don't want the truth to be out there and then have the, the groundswell of anger out there with nowhere to really place it. I mean, I, I don't know what you're going to be able to tell people. You know, maybe it's 40% of the country that's Republicans. There's going to be a lot of anger out there if, these people get off scot-free and then we get this long report and then we can go through and find all these crimes. So uh, I, I don't know what Durham's plans are, but I hope there's more. I hope it's not just Joffe either. I, I mean, I hope he really, you know, goes to the heart of this. And, and you know what, if he has to bring a case that's a little bit weak, I'd rather him try it, like try it in the DC court. If you can't get the conspiracy charge through, I understand it's tough. You know, they had years to cover up evidence. Um, I understand it, it's going to be incredibly challenging for him to, to bring that case, but I, I hope he does it. I mean, I want to see all the evidence that he's got, you know, bring it to trial, present the, the best and strongest case that you can. And if he loses in a DC court, I, I will know that he did the best he could. A big but part in many of cases, it's, in many cases, it's, it's too late. Remember the, um, the March 6th meeting, right? Uh, March 6th. 2017, when the FBI met the DOJ and they lied their asses off. McCabe, Strzok, Priestap, nothing happened. Five years have passed. And what happened is that Durham gave those notes of that meeting to Sussman's team. And it wasn't Durham who introduced it at the trial. It was Sussman's team who introduced it. That, that's the sort of the whole, everything's upside down to me, you know, ever since this trial started. It's Sussman who is kind of indicting the FBI, and it's Durham who's, who's kind of portraying the FBI as some kind of victim. And it's totally upside down. I completely agree with you. 
it would have been much better to start off by saying the FBI is corrupt, the FBI did terrible things, but Sussman did also lie to the FBI. You know, two things can be true at the same time. But by turning it all around, by, by making the FBI the victim, it gives Sussman's team this opportunity to paint the FBI as corrupt, which you know, is, is very weird because, you know, again, that's, that's Team Clinton. But at the same time, so far, it's been pretty effective. I, I would have, for the long run, I would have much preferred it to be the other way around. I would I feel cut lot of them a little bit of slack, just in the sense that uh, he only works with people that he trusts, obviously, and his office doesn't leak. Now, if he went and stocked, you know, DOJ prosecutors, FBI investigators, every move he made would be on the cover of the Washington Post and the New York Times, and his investigate it, it, the special counsel's office would just fall apart. He, he can't operate in those conditions with leaks coming left and right, and I think that was absolutely going to happen if he just had a bunch of random suits from those organizations they're too politicized uh so he really was on the horns of a dilemma i don't know what he could have done that's kind of the root of the problem is is that uh durham doesn't have the benefit of a media that he can use as a tool like Mueller had and you know so many of these problems you know the funding deficiencies the staffing deficiencies um, just all of this stuff gets solved by a media that's not completely in the tank for one party. And unfortunately, that's the reality that we live in. And that's the reality that Durham has to prosecute this case under, you know, so it, it's I don't know. Have we reached the point where that's an insurmountable obstacle to holding government accountable? I don't know. But it's just, you know, I don't know. Democracy dies in darkness. I'll just say that. <laughs> I think it's a. I think that's a fair point. I mean. If if the media was presenting this in in thorough detail, and if you know even thirty or forty percent of the country knew what we know, I mean this would be the number one political story because of the groundswell of demand from the public for it. I mean CNN and and all these networks couldn't skate by. I mean I saw Elon Musk uh, tweet out criticism of ABC, rightfully so, because they've completely ignored this trial. But you know what? If there was, you know, 40 million Americans calling for it, they wouldn't be able to ignore it. And once you get into the minutia of what actually happened, that's where you understand how bad it is. And if, you know, if networks did break this down in, in such a detail, you know, yeah, it would serve Durham to a large extent because, you know, it would it would build the pressure on some of these people that are still holding the line uh and withholding documents and, you know, sticking to the to the plan, I guess. And we wouldn't be here today if the media wasn't complicit in all of these operations. And in order for the media to fairly report what's happening now, they have to be critical of themselves. And that's just not going to happen. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, that's not going to happen at all. Um if I can just kind of uh, jump back to another issue, which I think is really important to to talk about today because it affects a lot of us here today on, on this chat, is um, Rodney Joffe cited a whole bunch of us in his quest to infer that somehow John Durham exposed his Rodney Joffe's identity 
And that is absolute bullshit. So I, I, I know I just wanted to bring it up because we, we haven't talked about that yet. And it affects it affects me because I've been, you know, I was I was one of the people there. It affects uh, uh, Walker Fire. It affects Fool, obviously. It affects a whole bunch of us here. Um, so, you know, anyway, I just wanted to, to bring that in because um, if anyone's listening, especially on the uh, Durham side, um, hey, guys, you need to push back because, no, none of us heard anything from Durham's side. We had no leaks. There was nothing whatsoever. None of that has anything to do with Durham. The only reason why Rodney Joffe's name was mentioned in our corner of Twitter is because Fool went through the Alpha Bank docket. And within the Alpha Bank docket, which was a separate case, nothing to do with John Durham, there was a uh, deposition by Daniel Jones, John McCain's little buddy. And Daniel Jones was the one who offered up Rodney Joffe's name. And this all happened before the indictment of Michael Sussman had nothing to do with John Durham. So I really, really, really hope if you're listening, John Durham's team, please, please push back on that bullshit. Completely agree. 100%. I mean, yeah. Nothing to even add to that. I think that's perfect. And if you're listening, Rodney Jaffe and his team, fuck you and your clockmaker scam. Well, okay then. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. I, I sorry, uh, I had to get that, I had to get that out. Yeah, fire him up. I mean, that's you know, naming people in court filings will will entice them a little bit more. That's good. <laughs> um, maybe I totally, maybe I totally missed it, but why do we have this uh, Jaffe filing that that names all these tweets that appears to be a completely separate case? What is what did this uh, come from? Yeah, so uh, it was like a couple months ago now. He filed a motion to intervene in the Sussman case because basically Durham had maligned him in all these filings for months and months. And as a result of everything that happened, um, he was like under a bunch of pressure. So uh, Judge Cooper kicked that to a separate docket under like a sealed, uh, and they had some sealed filings. And then he ruled a couple weeks ago that they were going to be unsealed subject to some redactions. So uh, that's what came out tonight. So, um, yeah, so we saw the filing from Joffe basically saying, uh, oh, a bunch of people on Twitter are being mean to him. Uh, and he has like 46 pages of mean tweets that are directed at him, I guess. So I'm a, I'm a little bit confused why public tweets or public media articles would be redacted in a filing like that. Is there any obvious reasons that I'm completely missing? I'm not sure. The tweets he selected were, the tweets that he attached were selective because he left out the grandfather clock scam. Yeah, he sure did, didn't he? He, uh, he was very carefully selecting those. He, uh, anything that actually called him out on like stuff he did wrong mysteriously are not included in his filing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good good point, King. Um, <laughs> anybody else want to speak? I, I know we have a bunch of people that requested um, a chance to ask questions, but 
walk a fire. We haven't heard from you tonight. What's up, man? Oh, not not much. Um, I, I'm actually doing a lot of chores and stuff around the house. I'm mostly just on on listen mode, but wanted to pop in real quick because uh, just everything that's been going on the last week or two with the, with the trial and even before I know I've missed a lot of these. Um, but I wanted to make sure that that I gave you a shout out. The your live tweeting today was was amazing. I mean, it was it was very clear, concise, easy to follow. I know your your fingers were hurting by the end. I'm sure you took all sorts of, of great notes and everything. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a couple days behind on the, the transcripts from last week, trying to get caught up on everything, but I feel like I don't even need to read the ones from today almost because of how well you did. So I wanted to make sure that, that you got recognition for that. Uh, that's, that's very nice of you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope you're hope you're enjoying DC. It's 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 pretty swampy, but pretty fun as well. So um, <laughs> don't don't get sucked in too much. Um, at least not until we all run for Congress and that we can take it by storm. There I, you I, go. I take that back. I mean, in a purely non-insurrectiony way, we will take it by storm. But um, uh, overall, uh, I don't think I have too much to to contribute that anyone else hasn't already said tonight um you know it's it's interesting to watch all this go down i think we're learning a lot i think um you know i figured we would learn some stuff from the trial that we didn't see in the in the uh filings before but man we're, we're getting all sorts of fun stuff so that's neat especially for those of us that like digging into the nitty-gritty um you know, when it comes to Durham as a whole, uh, you know, Steve McIntyre has been real big on the whole, uh, you know, the focus on the on the criminal side is is letting them get away with just the counterintelligence failures and narrative side. And I think that's I, I agree with him a lot on that of a lot of, of all this stuff that went down is unfortunately just just dirty political tricks that's that's how it works it's the nature of the beast um you know even the fbi the federal government all of the doj it's all just people and you have your policies and procedures and those can be followed to the letter or how did obama put it in his last meeting in the oval office of of uh doing it by the book you you can do it by the book and still be corrupt and crooked and biased um, without technically crossing a uh, a criminal line. So while we're getting some of these indictments, that's great. I hope we get some more. Um, but but I think sunlight's the best disinfectant. I think, unfortunately, the political process is, is going to be the, um, the, the best way to, to clear house um, and, and get this all out there to the public. Um, it's certainly loading us up with plenty of, of ammunition for 2022, for 2024, uh, for, for calling people out and saying, hey, no, you can't vote for them because they were part of these, um, these, these dirty tricks. So I think that's something to, to keep in mind. Um, you know, another big thing that I'm excited about, I guess, is you know, part of this whole uh, indictment with Sussman is that Durham was declassifying thousands and thousands of documents in order to turn over to him. We may not see those in the trial. 
Um, we may not see them for a long time, but it gives us plenty of, of things to FOIA and go after for the next several years, I'm sure. And they're going to try and redact as much as they can. And so we will do our best to figure out what's under those redactions. Um, but let's, let's, you know, the, the problem with politics is that it's never done. The job is, is always ongoing. We're, we're not going to reach a finish line ever. Even when Durham is done, we're never going to reach a finish line. And it's just constantly calling them out, being on top of things as much as we can. Um, there's my, my, uh, my speech for the night, I guess. Um, I might pop in to, to speak a little bit later, too, but I'm going to just be on listen mode for a while while I finish up some stuff around here. Again, I appreciate your your thread today. I appreciate you hosting the spaces. Um, and if anyone has any questions or comments for me, you know, feel free to DM me. I, I have closed DMs, but I, I try and check my message requests whenever I can, which isn't very often these days, but hopefully that'll be changing soon. So thanks, everybody. Well, thank you, Walkfire. I mean, your comments are, are great, as they always are, and we're always lucky to have you stop in our chat whenever you can and, and share your thoughts. I mean, I think that's a, a great point that you raised. I mean, we're, we're seeing all these documents un- declassified, and it might be a lot easier to get them through FOIA now, so or at least in theory. So that, that might be something to look forward to as we um, you know, try to get the answers to all this. I will say real quick on that front, you know, one thing that they like to do, I just got a, uh, a FOIA request uh, back and they withheld the entire case file because of uh, the B7A uh, uh, exemption, which is law enforcement proceedings, which I think is ridiculous in thinking about appealing that. But um, that's why I've, I've held off on foia in anything from the Sussman trial or Danchenko or anything is we need to wait until it's over then FOIA so that they can't use that B7A or at least not as liberally as they would like. That's a good point. And that, that might uh, be something to think about. I mean, it, I think all of us were thinking earlier about the uh, Grasso Joffe 302 and that that's probably going to be subject to that exemption with Joffe potentially being under criminal investigation still. Um, let's see here. Sorry, I, I appreciate you guys that have been waiting so long to ask your, your questions or, or offer your comments. I uh, wanted to kind of hear from a few people, but um, Christopher, I, I just added you a speaker. I don't know if you have a question or comment. Go ahead, man. <laughs> that's what happens I uh, I finally give people their shot and it's been so long that you probably are off doing something uh, Christopher if you're there um, go ahead with your, your thoughts alrighty sorry Christopher yeah. we'll, uh, we'll come back to you though Hey, well, hey, what's up? Um, so I, I think uh, Walk of Fire just kind of answered his own question of why this is dragging out is is the exact you know, it's they're burying stuff, you know, Durham. I mean, it's to me, it's pretty obvious that that this is not going anywhere. Um, they're soft peddling it. Uh, I think Durham's not trying to make the FBI the, the, the bad guy, because like you said, it's 
the defense is, is going to do that. And Durham's not going to be able to get any kind of cooperation from anybody if they, if he tries to, you know, tries to, you know, um, drag the FBI into, you know, into the courtroom and, 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 you know, and lambaste them. Um, obviously, you know, Pianca was dragging his feet, but I, I think the whole thing with Chicago is, 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 um, it, it goes to Rahm Emanuel and Evanina, um, and how, you know, uh, the white house was running it. So who's Obama going to kick it to? He's going to kick it to his buddy. Um, he's going to kick it to Rahm Emanuel in Chicago, um, to find something since there's nothing going on. And then I was also going to comment on the fact that, um, you know, um, Clinton had her eye on McCabe. Um, she hated, um, you know, she hates Comey. Um, and uh, Struck and Page were were hitching their 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 wagon to 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 Andy <clears throat> to um, you know propel them you know into that into those spots. Um, and uh, you know nobody liked nobody liked Comey. I think you know he was pretty you know pretty universally hated in in dc um because of the simple fact that he's just trying to get it you know keep the keep the job for himself and he didn't really care he preferred trump to win because then he could just you know play trump's you know bagpipe um to you know do the bill Barr thing but um you know andy was definitely hoping to get you know clinton in there because he's there's a job waiting for him so, but, um, but yeah, I think you did a great job today. Um, uh, it was, it was fascinating. Um, you know, it was just, uh, you, you get to see what, what, you know, what this, what that, that place is like. It's just, it's, it's awful. Um, it really is. But, and, and kudos to, um, where'd she go? Where'd she go? Where'd she go? Did she leave? Leslie. Yeah. Oh, there she is. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I appreciate that. And I think you had a couple good, good thoughts there. Um, I'm not so sure that uh, they would have kicked it to Chicago for anything related to Rahm Emanuel. But um, otherwise, I mean, yeah, I, I think you had a couple yeah. good points there. I, I don't see Rahm Emanuel really being involved there or being a nexus that would uh, connect it. But yeah, well, I mean, he's a, he's, a, he's, he's a pit bull. I mean, he just he tears into anybody. He's got a history of just tearing into anybody who, you know, he you know, he'll make stuff happen, but they're, they're basically just trying to get something to happen and nothing is happening. And, you know, there's, you know, the white house, I guess is screaming at the FBI and to get something done and, you know, nobody's getting anything done. So they kicked it to, you know, to Allison and she's, you know, hopefully going to open up anything, but I, I don't know. They just, they're just, it wasn't going anywhere. And, well, um, I'll, I'll pop in real quick about the Chicago aspect. Um, you know, Chicago, has, their field office has a very big emphasis on the counterintelligence cyber side. Um, yeah, so yeah Evanina, right. Do that, Evanina. And then also a lot of people, you know, either don't realize or forget Curtis Heidi. Actually, uh, he was the one that was overseeing uh, Allison Sands and involved in a lot of this. Um, and I'm, I, I was telling someone earlier today, I, I, for some reason... I don't remember why I was thinking it. I was thinking that, that he was not necessarily a bad actor, um, but I don't remember why I thought that. So I don't know. But he was he was actually involved in the mid-year exam uh, uh, case. Um, 
and then also on actually on the Mueller team uh, for a yeah. while. He even signed some of the the search warrants for Roger Stone yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. I was thinking about that. Wasn't he considered a director at one point? A director? Yeah, wasn't wasn't Evanina considered a you know he for the job as director? Uh, he was the director of the um, Chicago. No, 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 no. It's the oh. Uh, oh, why am I forgetting it? Counter intel thing. It's some cyber task force. Some oh, okay. Thing. I, yeah, I can't I, recall I tried exactly. To... I tried to follow a link to the Chicago Tribune. It was dead. You did what? I tried to follow a link to the Chicago Tribune, and the link was dead uh, um, from from Bolshevik. Yeah, no, he's he's he was involved in, especially during the transition and stuff. You, you'll see his name pop up. Um, I can't remember what exactly task force or or um, maybe it was under the ODNI or something like that. But he was kind of the liaison between all the different intelligence agencies on, on cyber matters. Um, okay. But then, yeah, Curtis Heidi, he was, he was on Mueller's team. He was, he was part of this alpha bank stuff. He was part of uh, mid year exam. Um, so he's, he's pretty involved. Someone was mentioning earlier, you know, how did, how did Mueller not, not know about this? How do you not find out about this? Oh. Well, I mean, his, one of the agents on the, on his team was, was part of this. And I think, you know, I looked at that as, you know, they didn't look at it because they all knew there was nothing there and there was no point in looking at it um, or it had already been pretty much closed. Uh, but I wanted to, to, to point that out that, you know, the Chicago thing I don't think necessarily has to do with Chicago politics as much as okay. just you've got San Francisco, uh, Pittsburgh, and Chicago field offices are, are really big on the cyber matter. So if you see a, a cyber case, it's almost always going to be out of out of one of those three, maybe Washington field office and maybe headquarters, but uh, usually it's going to be those three. Okay. Well, cool. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh, Christopher, I don't know if you're there, but uh, wanted to give you another shot. No? Okay. <laughs> uh, let's see. General Logos, what's up? Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Are you able to hear me okay? Yeah. Oh, great. I just want to say thank you uh, first for uh, for live tweeting the uh, the uh, courtroom uh, today. That was nice. Um, so, it, so I kind of have a two-part question here, and it has to do with the operation itself. I, I mean, the sheer size of this operation, I mean, everything from, um, you know, laundering information uh, through Yahoo to, uh, to the FISA court to, I'm sure you guys remember the Office of Net Assessments to, uh, to Orr and the Ham Radio to, to, uh, to the professor, I think his name was uh, Mifsud. Um, who do we think, and this is a, a question to all the chat leaders that we have who do we think was the architect of this operation i mean this is something where i feel it would need to be managed i mean i know that they you know fed information to certain um outlets that they knew would be friendly uh to their um uh, allegations but somebody had to be running point on it somebody had to be kind of 
briefing it, um, uh, um, um, bird dogging it as a term. Um, and what do you think their primary method of communication was uh, to basically make sure the op was running uh, as smoothly? Um, I mean, it really, uh, I, I mean, I mean this in, I mean, I don't mean this in a good way, I guess, but you have to almost kind of step back in amazement and awe of, of what they were able to kind of pull off. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't think the person that architected it is, uh, is too dumb. I think they're, that they're extremely smart and intelligent and understood exactly how this could be done. I mean, I have a personal feeling that Brennan may have been a part of it in, in, in some form of, of the architecture of it, but just kind of curious what, what you guys think of who really was the architect and, and what was their primary method of communication? I mean, we think of a smoky back room, but I, I would assume that they weren't using normal channels of, of, of communication uh, that would be easily traced back or documented or locked. And uh, I'll, I'll stand by for an answer, but thank you. Yeah, so uh, a few points to make. So I, I think you re referenced MythSuit, and, and that particular piece has kind of been debunked. I mean, I don't think there's any merit there. But uh, towards your central question of, like, who was orchestrating this and what, how did they communicate, I mean, I don't know that any of us have a, a real good sense of the command and con control structure because it's so hard to infer what is sheer incompetence and what is malfeasance? And until we actually see the communications, we're just not going to know. I mean, obviously today we have a lot of indications that we, you know, furthering a, a long line of, of other pieces that we've gotten that the FBI leadership did some highly suspicious things. And, and some of the decisions they made would seem to suggest a, a criminal intent, potentially, but... You know, until we actually see communications or we see a witness come forward and say, this is what, you know, somebody directed me to do. I, I don't know. I don't I don't know what's going to happen. I, I don't know if there will be a prosecution uh, that identifies anybody like that. And I mean, as far as their, their means of communication so far, I mean, they're putting a lot of stuff in, in damning emails and uh, link chats, which is their internal communication system. So. You know, yeah, maybe there's a secondary system. I mean, you look at like the private actors, and I know like Fusion GPS and I think Orbis as well. Like they did a massive upgrade of their uh, IT capabilities, and this was actually a thread that Undercover Huber put together years ago. And basically, they they almost have like a bank grade uh, uh, IT infrastructure, uh, basically to guard their communication systems. So. Um, yeah, I don't know how many safeguards there are, you know, maybe there's like a signal chat out there, um, that they, they use to communicate. I, I know there's been a lot of speculation about the ham radios. I, I don't know that there's any merit there. It is pretty unusual to have like Nellie or Sasha Oppelman and, um, you know, a few others that actually have ham radio licenses. That's just a, that's a very odd concentration of people to, to have an interest like that, but you know. So far, we, we don't know. And, and until Durham gets a witness that says, yeah, we all communicated on ham radio. Can you imagine that? I, you know, an un I, I would imagine there's, there's an encrypted channel of some kind if there is a, a, like a control structure to this. So, MB or Walker Fire, go ahead and 
chime in. Well, and I would say too that you know for a lot of this, kind of what I was saying before is this is this is business as usual. This is politics. You don't you still need a little bit of command and control structure, but a lot of it is is just like that that declassified memo from from Ratcliffe. Hey, let's tie Trump to Russia to distract from my server. Okay, everyone kind of plays their part, not with necessarily even criminal intent, like whoa ha ha ha. Just okay. What what do we need to do? Uh, Joppy's one of Joppy's emails. We you know we're just looking for something that can support a, a, a not investigation, a deeper deeper look, or something like that. Like that's all they need. Okay, what do we find? What can we find? And so maybe you've got some someone that's causing these pings maybe not but hey all we need is something that we can get the fbi to start looking at him for and then the fbi starts looking at him and you get a leak and then oh there we go trump's been spending months saying we can't we we can't elect someone who's under fbi investigation and then hillary gets exonerated and then for her October surprise, she can turn around and say, oh, look, you're under FBI investigation. Remember what you said? We can't we can't elect someone that's under FBI investigation. So, bam. I mean, it's it's simple. And then all the, the details flow from that organically. Um, you don't need someone pulling every string every day that's keeping you know, 30 different players all in line. It's it's just the way it's going to go. These people spend they get paid to spend, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week learning how to manipulate politics and the press and the public and all of that for them. That's all they're doing is, okay. if this comes out, how do we spin it and kick that out there and then and then let just D.C. politics work. And so a lot of this, you know, as you dig into the details and you want to bring it to one massive conspiracy that was planned from the beginning, we're never going to find something like that. It's, it's picking apart. Okay. What were the plans and what was just organically picked up on and, and run? Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, you know, when you have an institution that's filled with a bunch of people, you know, that I think we're pretty convinced that pretty much the entire FBI or anybody than management was rooting for Hillary Clinton. Um, whenever any of them was faced with a situation where they had to make a decision, and perhaps they could pick either decision A or decision B, and either one was ethically or you know morally responsible, but one benefited Hillary Clinton and one benefited Donald Trump, they always ended up taking the, the choice that benefited their preferred candidate. And it's that's sort of how institutional bias rears its ugly head it's it's not necessarily that everything's being you know directed or centrally controlled it's just um bias influences the entire direction of an entire institution and it it just works its way through that way you know and it's i don't know how to solve that problem i have no idea how to solve that problem right you know that there's that text exchange between lisa page and, and and Peter Stroke, where she says he's not ever going to become president, right? And he says, no, no, we'll stop it. And everyone wants to focus on Stroke's text, saying, no, we'll stop it. And say, oh, there we go. 
But I think the actual more damning text is her and realizing what her mindset is every day when she goes to work is, oh, my gosh, we, this monster is going to be president. We can't let that happen. Not that she's going to cross a, a legal line to stop him, but just if information comes in that's bad about Hillary versus information that comes in that's bad about Trump, which one is she going to believe? And therefore, that's going to influence, not direct, not, not be a, an excuse, but just influence her decision making. That's where I think the institutional rot, I guess you could say, or, or just, just institutional bias um, comes into play is everyone ran with this narrative that Trump was a Russian Manchurian candidate. And so, okay, how do we, how do we stop that from happening? Not because we hate him or because he's a Republican. It's, oh, these damn Russians, how do we stop the Russians? And it, it just clouded them so much and everything happens at such a breakneck speed, especially during an election year. You, know, you can see all these same different events happening on the same dates and think that, oh my gosh, they've got to be connected. But taking a bigger step back and realizing there's so many other events happening that same day that we don't realize. And there's, there's just a limited window that we look at and think, Oh, this is all they're focusing on all day. Well, no, they were focusing on all sorts of things all day. And we get to see all these different pieces coming in and, and we want to connect them for it to make sense in our head. But it was a lot of it is actually coincidence or maybe they're connected in some tangential way but it's it's the bias itself that that says okay you didn't make an illegal decision here and that that goes back to the criminal versus just counterintelligence failure you may not have done something illegal but look at how all the investigations all the focus was on on trump and russia and then you can say okay from the going back to the who's who's in control, you don't have to do much other than just say, I know how they're going to react. Let me just drop a little crumb here and a little crumb there and a little crumb there and then watch the mice run around and play with it. Boom. You've got it all set. It also exposes something at the FBI. And, and I, rem I can't remember what exactly it was that triggered this, but there was there was at some point that I realized that the FBI must be a terrible place to work, particularly if you're working anywhere near the seventh floor. But what it, what it seems to be is that if you want to advance through the levels of the FBI, your only option is to be a political player and to play ball. And it, it's just, uh, uh, it has nothing to do with professional responsibility. It has nothing to do with competence. All it has to do is be able to take directions and follow them out, whether you agree with them or not. And it, there's something very wrong there because they, they seem to have a culture that, that makes it a... Um, a agency crime to speak up if you disagree. Yeah, I, I was going to echo exactly what Walkafire said that organic was the word that came to, to my mind that the, I, I, the FBI or the FBI DOJ had a track. Uh, the Clintons obviously had a track and yeah, there was crossover, but I don't know that they were ever somebody sitting down in a room going, okay, you know, Peter Stroke, here's what you're going to do to ex to extend this thing. I think there were circles and they were, they were largely based on self-interest and it really can't be uh, 
overstated how how much that Trump as president threatened the interests of all these different organizations and the people in them and the people that spent their lives, you know, trying to climb that ladder that JH was just talking about. And if you could look at just a simple thing like the FISA process that we were told over and over again that, no, no, you can't abuse it. It's impossible. There's these Woods files and 10 different people have to sign off on it and blah, blah, blah. And we find out that, you know what, that's bullshit. It was all, you know, it's all rubber stamped. It's all, you know, basically they'll just pass whatever you put in front of the court. And it took a long time for us to figure that out. And bipartisan opposition to letting that come to light. And that's just one little thing that we discovered because of the kind of the tsunami that Trump brought to bear. And that must have just scared the hell out of a ton of people. And they, it, it was making their lives more difficult. So anything he could, that people like Stroke or McCabe that could do to make Trump's life more difficult, they do it, you know, just exactly like that. Little decision of the day. Should we investigate something Clinton did or something that Trump did? We're going to go after Trump. Yeah, it, it came to light, you know, that FISA court doesn't even hold a physical hearing when they seek it, when the FBI seeks a FISA warrant. And it's just, it's one of those things that sort of like came to light and everybody just pretended that it didn't exist, you know, and it, I don't know. And some serious bullshit too. Um, hey, Ryan, thanks much, man. I appreciate the coverage today and also this. I just wanted to bring up a couple of things and I apologize if it's been mentioned. I missed about the first. 30 minutes or so, uh, getting home late, but, um, um, Paul Sperry had something, uh, you know, today about, uh, you know, the, uh, funding that Hillary may have used being wildly in excess of, um, uh, you know, what had been reported, you know, to the FC, you know, that, that prior F uh, FEC action and, um, also that the Obama you know, recently, you know, came to light, the, or actually it was a while ago, the Obama campaign, which, you know, for some inconceivable reason to me, actually wound up, you know, uh, uh, sending bucks to uh, Fusion GPS. Um, anyway, what I just wanted to mention those things, which I, you know, kind of bear tangentially on all this. But the thing that I'm looking at right now is, you know, the period in late July 2016 to early August 2016, when all of a sudden everything goes ballistic. And, you know, from the uh, Brennan briefing Obama to everything kicking off, I mean, there's obviously being springs pulled every which way. Those directions have to come from Obama. I think Clapper's on record as saying Obama's like, you know, saying, you know, investigate Russia, you know, Russia interference in the election, you know, devote every resource, you know, to that. And um, that's really where I want to hear, you know, I want to find some more information out about personally. But anyway, that's all I had. Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, you had a, a few questions or points there. So as it relates to Paul, Paul Sperry's tweet, what he's tweeting out is apparently um, an allegation from Cash Patel that, uh, the amount spent on all these dossier allegations and everything that happened, you know, I think I saw a range of like 50 to a hundred million dollars. Now that seems incredibly high to me. I, I do suspect there is some level of money laundering. I think they, they spent considerably more than they reported to the FEC on constructing all of this. Um, but I, I would not imagine it will come close to $50 million. So, um, you know, I'm not sure where Paul Sperry uh, actually got that from Cash Patel. I, I haven't seen that interview, and 
you know, I'm not sure what Cash Patel was was referencing either. So, um, and then I think you, you talked a little bit about Obama, um, and I, I forgot the second point you made, but um, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know how much control or influence Obama had over uh, the allegations or or the investigations. Um, it remains to be seen. I, I don't know. Um, we obviously have the text from Strzok where he, they say something like the White House is running this, which is pretty intriguing with all the events that we're, we're seeing around that time. Yeah, the, the White House is running it, but above me on that, even if it's not uh, something that's direct, if he's all of a sudden telling Clapper and, you know, all of the IC uh, entities, I want you to investigate, you know, Russia interference in this election, um, that's ostensibly something that's, you know, fine on its face. But when you look at the background that he was just informed that uh, Hillary is running a bogus, you know, Trump um, Russia collusion thing, then it takes on a different tone altogether to me. Can I can I uh, can I interrupt? Sure. Um, Brennan, uh, him briefing uh, Obama and uh, I think a couple other people. Um, we don't know the date that he briefed them, right? He said, I think he said on CNN that it was in August. No, no, no. July 28th. I don't, I think he said it on CNN during an, um, an interview that it was August. I believe it is July 28th. Because I, I, there's a, uh, there's um, a scribbly number. Uh, I think it's Brennan. Sorry, I've got like a, a sore throat. He's got a, um, uh, he wrote 26, but it kind of looks like a 28. And I think that's where that's coming from i i've i've looked pretty hard for this date and i have not been able to find anyone who's been able to determine it conclusively it just it's just one of those things well we have the the letter from i think it was ratcliffe or or maybe it was grinnell that declassified that that memo and in the memo it it says july 28th it there are very few numbers on on there i think there's three separate pdfs and they're like one's two pages one's three i think the other's three pages there's very little information to begin with because almost everything's redacted um but yeah i don't think there is i don't know where the number 28 came from i don't think that's accurate um i I thought i recalled somebody running down like the visitor log or something um um or some kind of confirmation on, you know, there actually was a meeting on the 28th, but I just don't remember the details because I never really thought to question that, but certainly worth looking into. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll take a, take another look at that. Um, guys, I, I think this is probably a good time for me to go ahead and end the chat. I know we, we have more people that have questions and comments they want to make, but um, I've had a pretty long day. And uh, yes, you have. Thank you. Yeah, I I did my best and and, uh, stuck with it as long as I could. But it's probably a good time for me to catch a few hours of sleep and um, we'll see what I do tomorrow. I don't know if I'll live tweet it or not, but um, I'll consider it. And uh, I want to thank everybody for coming out tonight. And I want to thank all of our great speakers, as always. They're always on top of their game. And I hope everybody has a good night. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Good night, everybody.